Oops, sorry, that's the wrong one. I'd like to call to order this city council meeting of October the 3rd, 2023. Tonight's meeting is a hybrid meeting. Community members are welcome to join us either in person or remotely through Zoom or by telephone. Clerk, will you please call the roll? Uh, oh, that's right. Would, if you would, please. I move that we excuse Councilmember Blackwood. Second. Moved by Councilmember Nixon, seconded by Councilmember Curtis to excuse Councilmember Black. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Thank you for that. Clerk, will you now call the roll? Councilmember Nixon? Here. Councilmember Curtis? Here. Councilmember Falcone? Here. Councilmember Pascal? Here. Deputy Mayor Arnold? Here. Mayor Sweet? Here. Thank you. Our study session tonight is on three topics. First is a King County Regional Homelessness Authority five-year <clears throat> plan update. The second is a King County Health Through Housing Project update. And the third is a coordinated response to homelessness initi initiative briefing. We expect to reconvene our regular meeting at approximately 7.30. City Manager, you want to kick us off? Okay. <clears throat> so thank you, Madam Mayor, uh, Deputy Mayor, members of the Council. Um, as you mentioned, we have three related topics that we wanted to talk with the council about. Each of these is about how can we help those experiencing homelessness in our community uh, find a path to stable and safe housing. Um, we have about a half an hour for each topic, so we're going to keep you on task, although these are very complex topics that could each take their own hour and a half. Uh, to walk us through the beginning is Jim Lopez, our Deputy City Manager of External Affairs, and he's going to introduce our guests as they all come up for their presentations. Good evening. <clears throat> Thank you, City Manager. Good evening, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor and Council. Um, as the City Manager noted, I'm Jim Lopez, one of two Deputy City Managers here at the City, and it's my pleasure tonight to introduce you to the three presentations outlining critical activities that the City and our partners are engaging in as part of a systemic approach to addressing, it, to addressing this generational challenge of homelessness in our region and in our local community. The first presentation is from the King County Regional Homelessness Authority regarding their five-year plan. This work builds on important foundation for our work here in Kirkland. The KCRHA's role is to unify and coordinate funding policies and programs of 39 cities in King County into a single efficient responsive system for those experiencing homelessness. Next up is an update about our work with King County regarding the Health Through Housing Initiative, a program that's underway regarding the former La Quinta Hotel. In this presentation, you will see what the county has accomplished to date, a timeline for upcoming projects and milestones, as well as the work we are doing together to build the essential referral networks that will help populate the facility with the members of our local community when it's completed. And finally, you will receive a presentation on the critical work we are doing here internally 
with the city's coordinated response to homelessness initiative. Here you will hear about the HEART team, a dedicated group of highly skilled individuals who come from the several departments in the city who have come together to provide safe, humane, effective, and extremely responsive action. It's an approach to working with the unhoused population in their immediate needs in the community. Taken separately, each of these programs would be considered an impressive body of work. Taken together, however, as a coordinated interdependent series of activities, each designated to build off the resources, information, and learnings of the other, this work rises to the level of the challenge before us. We need each other. And as you, Council, remind us, we need to work together as organizations hand-in-hand -hand with our community to meet this challenge. So tonight we take you behind the scenes to see how we are building this essential collaboration. And so with that overview, it is my pleasure to introduce our first speaker, Mallory Van Abba, Abama, the East King County, I'm sorry, the East King Sub-Regional Planning Specialist from the King County Regional Homeless Authority. And Nigel Herbig is with her as well, the Government Relations Manager. So welcome and thank you. set up. All right, uh, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, Honorable Council Members, um, it's a pleasure to be here tonight. My, my name is Nigel Herbig, I'm the Intergovernmental Relations Manager for the King County Regional Homelessness Authority and as the Deputy City Manager, Said, I'm joined by our East King County Sub-Regional Planning Specialist, uh, Mallory Van Abema. Um, we're excited to give you an overview of our approved five-year plan uh, and talk about our East King County uh, Sub-Regional Implementation Plan, which is currently in development. Sorry, I'm not used to be on this side of the <laughs> dais. Um, so uh, the interlocal agreement that formed KCRHA required that we write a five-year plan. Um, we did so with extensive community engagement, uh, which started back in the summer of 2022, uh, with meetings across the county, workshops, uh, meeting with um, outreach providers, with city staff, um, or um, just anybody who was involved in the homelessness sector over many months. Um, Using what we gathered, we started a development of content in the fall of 2022 with regular check-ins with our providers and city partners. And we released a draft uh, five-year plan in January of this year for feedback and public comment. We received, as you can imagine, thousands of public uh, comments um, and a lot of feedback from our city partners on that. And we used the feedback to restructure the plan. Uh, we restructured the plan to identify 77 uh, activities, a three-pronged approach for the plan, and one overall goal. 
Uh, the final plan was approved unanimously by both our boards in May and June of this year. So the plan's overall goal is to focus on unsheltered homelessness and bring people inside in a way that meets their needs. The overarching goal aligns well with the formal uh, charge of the authority, which is to oversee the crisis response system for homelessness in King County. Uh, and we, you know, as your deputy city uh, manager said, we do need to continue to work together, to come together, to be better aligned and coordinated if we're gonna be successful in the next five years to address homelessness. So this is a broad overview of kind of the five-year um, five plan structure. Ultimately, we're working to build a homelessness response system where uh, individual providers are adequately resourced to carry out their work. Uh, providers are well-coordinated with peer agencies and have capacity to contribute uh, dynamic data to uh, back and forth, uh, operate in sub-regions across the county, and offer services that address the needs of folks who hold identities that are disproportionately impacted by homelessness. We also need to ensure that there are strong connections between the systems to provide supportive transitions for folks and avoid the unnecessary harm of slipping um, into gaps between institutions. I'll now pass over to Mallory, who will discuss uh, sub-regional planning. Thank you. Well, good evening, Council. Thank you so much for inviting us here this evening. We're so excited to share a little bit about the East King County sub-regional planning process um, with you and get some feedback on how that moves forward um, and uh, in a moment, in a moment for discussion. So Nigel just gave an overview of the five-year plan. There are 77 total activities within the five-year plan, which is quite a lot. Um, 30 of those have been identified as needing to be locally tailored. So they're contingent on the local service landscape, um, addressing you know, the existing assets and also the kind of areas for growth that exist in each of the seven identified subregions across King County. Um, a little background on the subregions themselves. They were identified in partnership with folks with lived experience of homelessness and essentially this process of identifying a rather uh, dynamic uh, set of seven subregions was uh, done really with the leadership of folks who have navigated homelessness themselves and have said, this is where I've moved around and access services and this is where ultimately I hope to find housing. Um, so in East King County, uh, we are working most closely with your city and Redmond and Bellevue and Issaquah and Sammamish, uh, but essentially all of the east side jurisdictions, including Beau Arts Village and the, the bigger points and all of those in between uh, Mercer Island, we've made uh, concerted efforts to make sure that they can have access to the planning process as well and look forward to kind of folding them in. But I will say that we've been most actively engaged with uh, Kirkland, Bellevue, Redmond, uh, Sammamish, Issaquah, and... Did I say five? Yes, I think so. I've said them before, so I'll just go ahead and move along. Um, and before I move forward on the slide, too, I think just to wrap back on the 77 activities outlined in the plan, about 30 of those will be locally adopted into each of the seven sub-regional plans. Um, so structurally, kind of what can you expect to see in the sub-regional plans? There will be six key components within them. We have an analysis of the existing landscape of homelessness services. We've also worked really closely with folks in your human services departments and other cities to look at historical investments into homelessness response, um, in addition to funding that's come from county sources and other sources to just kind of analyze the proportionality of investment that is coming to East King County uh, service providers. Uh, we are also looking at uh, lived experience input. So our uh, theory of change is really centered on the voices of those who have lived experience of homelessness in the region and ensuring that we are moving forward 
uh, with guidance from folks who have that expertise that can't be bought, that's lived and experienced. Um, so we do have a section in the plan that pertains to the specific experience of, ex of homelessness in East King County. Um, we've also lifted up some kind of identified gaps in the service response system and um, needs that have been elevated by those folks that we closely consult with and also um, our provider partners, uh, absolutely. We will also include the activities that I previously mentioned, so those 30 activities that need to be locally tailored um, and associated action steps for making progress on those activities. These will all also be bound to a timeline um, and we are in the process of both fleshing out the action steps and the metrics for measuring success and progress on all of those items currently. Um, so as previously stated, we have about 30 five-year plan activities to be tailored into this plan. Um, the ones that are not being taken up in sub-regional plans are more on a administrative basis. They're things internally that we need to kind of standardize for the entire region. Um, so those are not going away. Um, they're going to be incorporated into kind of divisional work plans and also um, there will be ample opportunity to kind of influence how those activities themselves are actually um, implemented and take shape across King County. Uh, so as I mentioned also we are under development now. Um, we've had some successful workshops recently with providers and folks in kind of system partner roles as we colloquially call them. So that's folks in uh, emergency responder spaces, schools, uh, hospitals, but just general healthcare settings, behavioral healthcare settings, uh, foster care, and uh, criminal justice systems as well. Uh, because we recognize, as Nigel kind of alluded to in the opening remarks, that a lot of people are falling through the cracks and we have a lot of opportunities to kind of catch people and ensure that they're connected to an appropriate level of care um, and avoid homelessness in the first place. So I did want to share just one example. Um, we will have a draft plan we're anticipating that it will be released in quarter four of this year. Um, so you'll have more to look at soon. Uh, but for example, I did want to share one of the activities that was elevated in our five-year plan and ultimately adopted. Um, and it's around an effective communication strategy for one of our divisions, which is um, actually an independent division, but is housed under KCRIJ, uh, but is the Ombuds Office. And the Office of the Ombuds is a resource that's available to folks who are accessing service, um, delivering service, uh, proximal to it. Um, it's really a community resource and it's meant to be a, a very unbiased space for uh, folks to you know, air grievances and have an opportunity to address um, harm that has potentially been done in the service uh, system. So we've pulled this together just to give you kind of a preview of what a um, section in the sub-regional plan could look like related to each of those 30 activities. Um, so this is specific to the Ombuds Office, and this is about getting the word out and making sure that folks have uh, ample access to connect with the Office of the Ombuds and um, have their needs addressed. Uh, so as mentioned previously, these will be specifically tied to action steps. Um, we've outlined a few here of being very clear about the community partners that we need to be working with uh, to support a strategy development around an equitable communication kind of deployment uh, to make sure that folks in the community are aware of this resource. Uh, deploy the strategy and then ensure that we're using the existing networks where many, many folks are already convening. Um, there's quite a few in East King County. Um, and then just reassessing uh, our, our success of getting the word out and ensuring that we are kind of pivoting and adjusting as needed to make sure that folks know that this is a resource. So just a bit of an example for you to kind of um, ground in and actually actualize, I suppose, um, what I've previously mentioned. 
Um, and I think I did want to share just a bit about how we have engaged and developed the plans. Uh, we are very active uh, participants in the Eastside Homelessness Advisory Committee. We are uh, active also in the nourishing network spaces and the Eastside Interfaith Social Concerns Council, so some faith coalitions as well. Uh, we're, we're eager also to tap in, in any other coalition spaces that we can because we are trying to avoid redundancy and making uh, additional meetings on people's time. And there's quite a lot of kind of organic um, spaces where people are gathered and discussing issues that are either directly related to homelessness or somewhat adjacent. Uh, so we're consistently attending those and we've gotten a lot of feedback from those spaces. We are grateful to have some of your staff and other city staff meet with us regularly also um, to inform our planning efforts, to address uh, crises as they come up. Um, severe weather is a great example of that. Um, and also to discuss uh, pursuit of a potential partnership to uh, pool funding to ensure that we're kind of reducing fragmentation with, within our um, funding infrastructure within the county related to service providers. Um, we have quite a few other system partners that have been implicated in our five-year plan, and so we are also eager to tap into those existing spaces where folks like McKinney-Vento liaisons and uh, folks working in uh, public defender roles and others are already gathering so that we can solicit a lot of feedback and make informed decisions moving forward on how our plans take shape. Uh, so again, it'll be a draft form. You can expect to see it in quarter four of this year. We're excited about that. Um, we did want to have an opportunity to kind of hear from you, your questions uh, that you have around the planning process or King County Regional Homelessness Authority as a whole. Uh, we also had some prompts for you to consider as far as kind of how granular and how detailed you'd like us to get in this plan. Um, and how you would like to stay informed and involved in the subregional plan development process and review um, and ultimately the, the implementation of those activities that came ultimately from the five-year plan. So that's what I've got for you. I'd love to hear your questions if you've got them. Any questions or comments? Council, comments, questions? Councilmember Curtis. Whenever there's a gap, I'm always the one that's like, okay, I'm going to fill it. Because nobody's asking. Thank you, Mallory, and thank you, Nigel. Um, this is hard, complicated, complex work, and thank you for tackling it. Um, I know that doing the original strategic plan and having 39 cities providing input, so the sub-regional plan feels easier, right? Because there's only five cities, plus the point communities. Can you talk a little bit about the collaboration and the process, how you end up with one plan when we know you have five separate cities to coordinate? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you, Councilmember Curtis. Um, I think we've been really intentional about creating that space where we've got folks from um, human service and or city manager roles uh, participating on a regular basis. So um, I think, you know, partnership is built at the speed of trust, as you say. Um, but I think we've gotten made quite a lot of progress on identifying that, you know, sub-regionally, back to the original um, identifications of the sub-regions, it, 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 there's an experience that is shared, and if someone is experiencing homelessness in Kirkland, it's, it's likely that if they're a single man, they're going to go to Bellevue to get their shelter for the night. So I think there's a general understanding that a truly regional approach is needed. Um, there's a lot to balance, and I think that we've done quite a good job of doing that. Um, but I, I, I do think that there's a general understanding that is, is very felt and um, that we're all on the same page around the idea that we kind of need to work on this all together. Um, everybody's got a role to play, every jurisdiction, every individual. So. 
Thank you, Madam Mayor. <clears throat> well, thank you, Mallory. Thank you, Nigel, for being here tonight. Thank you for the, the hard work that you do. I know that the work you, you do is sometimes um, more or less popular in the public realm. So uh, we really appreciate you really pushing through and, and keeping your eye on the goal that you are clearly articulated here tonight. So thank you for that. I just want to recenter us around, you know, why we're doing this work to help our neighbors um, who are most in need and to, to help keep them safe, keep them alive and give them the resources that they need. Um, I'm sure your goal articulated it much better than that. But uh, so thank you for that. Um, <clears throat> Councilmember Curtis asked about kind of how the regional work uh, is, is going to happen. I have kind of a follow-on question to that. As you know, uh, we rely on our Human Services Commission to make recommendations on funding human services here in Kirkland. I know a lot of other cities do as well. What's the role of the Human Services Commissions in the cities? Um, I'm guessing I'm asking specifically um, on the east side for that sub-regional plan. Uh, and I know in the past, when I served on the Human Services Commission, for example, we did hold some joint meetings to do some of the, the similar work that you're talking about, you know, wanting to make sure that we were being um, thoughtful and having some sort of, uh, you know, comprehensive regional approach to some of the funding uh, recommendations that we're making to our councils. So is that a part of the plan? Can you kind of speak to what the plan is in engaging the Human Services Commissions across the East Side? Yeah, thank you so much for that question, Councilmember Falcone. Um, this has actually the value and the input of the service of the folks on the Human Service Commission is super apparent and very, very present, particularly in East King County. Um, so thank you for your service on the commission and now on the council. Uh, we have had discussions about how we can uh, more closely collaborate. We understand that kind of parsing <laughs> apart the funding streams that the human service uh, commissioners are reviewing is complex. As, as I mentioned, we did an analysis of the investments into homelessness, but when you look at a, a funding, you know, one, one funding stream might not necessarily just be encompassing shelter and outreach, could have employment support and um, other things like behavioral health support, which unfortunately is outside of our purview. Uh, so we have had some discussion uh, really closely about how are we going to ensure that the Human Services Commission is, is in no way bypassed by investments into homelessness on the east side? And I think at this moment, we're very much in a like choose your own adventure situation, whatever works best for commissioners. But I do think that we have some pretty clear kind of pull apart activities for related to contracts that your city currently holds that we need to do in uh, close partnership with the, the commissions themselves. We've, we've talked about you know, different options. Would it be a, a commission making a recommendation on a bulk of funds that goes towards homelessness? Uh, but we haven't, we haven't concretely landed anywhere. And we're excited to, I think, talk much more about that with you all, uh, if, should we get closer to that ultimate goal of kind of collaborating with funding investments. So I hope that answered your question. Thank you. Great. Uh, Councilman Pascal. Thank you. Um, thank you for the report and the presentation tonight. I, I had a couple questions. Um, I'll just ask them both and you can see how you want to respond. But first, could you just talk a little bit more about your relationship with King County's Health Through Housing and how you're working together or, or not um, and where those common linkages are a little bit? I'd, I'd, I know I've gotten questions about that and it's, it's something that's just uh, be better to understand. And then the second question is, you know, the, uh, the organization's been in existence for since 2019, I believe. And so you've perhaps learned a few things over the last four years um, on how to really tackle this complex problem. How have those lessons learned kind of been injected into this five-year plan, you know, to, to, to ensure 
a better outcomes, um, higher chance of success. Mm -hmm. yeah. Do you want to do you want to take healthier housing? <laughs> I'm not sure if I have a great answer on that one, but I'll try. We can um, check. Yeah, um, we many times people do actually mix up uh, health through housing with our work, and that's understandable. It's serving largely the same population in a different kind of way. Um, we, uh, I believe, some of the health through housing goes through CEA, which. Mm -hmm. goes through coordinated entry, uh, which goes through us. So we do have that relationship. Um, there has been, there have been discussions around moving some of uh, King County's um, PSH over to under our purview, um, but I'm not sure exactly how far those talks have gone. Um, I wouldn't want to get in the way of King County continuing to kind of get their, um, or do anything that would get in the way of them getting their hotels completely stood up. Um, which is an ongoing project they have. So um, we do send people to, through coordinated entry to, uh, to their health through housing locations. And it does help us with our throughput and our downstream or upstream, depending on how you're looking at it, um, places too, where we have folks who are maybe in tiny home villages or in other sorts of shelter, they're looking for something a little bit more permanent. Those folks are able to move out. We're able to move people into, into those, which ultimately helps the entire system. So they do work together, but we don't, Work together super closely on that outside of uh, coordinate entry, as far as I can under, as far as I understand. Uh, are you sharing? You're sharing information though that you're yeah. in data quite a bit, right? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the main linkage, right? Yeah, all of their um, all the people that come and go out of the system, including people in health or housing, are are in the HMIS, which is the um, homelessness management information system that we run for the county that's mandated by HUD. So all of that information is being shared across the system in HMIS. Thank you. And then your second question about um, lessons learned. Um, well, the ILA was signed in 2019. I would point out that our first employee, Mark, wasn't hired until April of 2021. Okay. And I was employed 24 in December of 2021. So we really, um, and we also didn't, didn't take ownership of um, the contracts from King County and Seattle until January of last year. So uh, I would argue that we weren't fully functional until last year when, and we also got fully hired up last year. Um, so I think it's a little early for that. We are kind of constantly iterating and learning from, from what we're doing as we move forward, but I think we're still, we're younger than the ILA would, would suggest. Oh, yeah, thanks for that explanation, that context. Because when I read 2019, I was like, wow, four years, but, but really, it sounds yeah, like a lot. It was also yeah, fully functional only yeah. a year or so. Okay. And we were struggling with COVID and all of that, too, with all, you know, during that hiring process. Um, and we also started from scratch. On day one, our CEO had to figure out how to, you know, get a, get a laptop, how to pay themselves, all that sort of stuff, too. So uh, we've, we've gone a long way since April of 2021. But, um, yeah, I hope that answers your question. Thank you. Yeah. Well, and I think we have a long way to go. Um, what Absolutely. it feels like to me is that we started out with marbles all over the floor, and the marbles are beginning to disappear. Um, so as we stabilize, I think Jim's comment that we need each other um, becomes more and more important. So we appreciate your work. Um, I think as a region, you know, nobody's 100, well, you know, you're in the same conversation as I am. Um, we trust that we're going in the right direction, and we feel good about the people who are doing the work. So I am really hopeful that that coordinated, uh, consolidated 
processes are going to touch each other. You know, that, that the, the connection symbol that you had up there, I think that is just vitally important. Um, and now, or in a minute, we'll hear about what we're going to do locally to make that happen from our perspective. So thank you so much, both of you, for being here tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. And we will see you soon. City Manager, you want to talk about uh, health through? All right. <clears throat> so uh, our Mr. Lopez is going back up. He's going to switch the slideshow, and then I believe he's going to introduce um, Jen Boone, our Human Services Manager, who's going to start our presentation on health through housing. I appreciate that nod to technology for me, but I'm not the switch the slideshow guy. <laughs> Thank you. So there's nobody from the county going to be here tonight? Uh, they are remote, okay. I believe. And who are they? Do we know? Jen will come up and introduce Thanks, them. The cap, closed caption. <laughs> Good evening. It's good to see you all, um, Council. I am Jen Boone, the Human Services Manager with the City. I am joined by Amanda Judd, our Human Services Coordinator, this evening as well. Um, we are here tonight to provide a progress update on the Health Through Housing Project and walk through the draft timeline prepared by the county to convert the former La Quinta End into permanent supportive housing to support those experiencing chronic homelessness. We have 10 short slides that we have prepared for you this evening that we'll be looking at project milestones, timeline related activities um, in order to activate the site in early 2025. We are also joined by two King County staff virtually this evening. Joining us are Simon Foster, the Director of Housing, Homelessness and Community Development and Drew Zimmerman, the Deputy Director of Operations in the Facilities Management Division. Both are available for questions at the end of the pre presentation related to both the programming and facilities activities related to the project. <clears throat> Before reviewing the timeline, King County has prepared a visual of project milestones that have been completed since 2022. The graphic captures both site and community engagement milestones to convert the former La Quinta into permanent supportive housing. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this graphic because you are familiar and have been very involved with several of these milestones, but do want to highlight some of the work that has been completed this year in 2023 that informs the project timeline we'll be discussing in depth tonight. Specifically, scoping and preliminary site work on, at the site, which includes decommissioning of the pool and safety improvements, community engagement with Kirkland and residents, which involved a public hearing earlier this year, the approved permanent supportive agreement between the county and the city, beginning procurement to support the tenant improvements that were identified as part of the scoping process in early 2022, and inviting agencies into this space who may be interested in operating the site in the future. Several of these milestones have informed the timeline that you have in front of you this evening, and county staff have taken a lot of considerations, and many of these inform that timeline. 
So we will go into depth around some of the more recently completed milestones, specifically around the procurement and the operator tours that happened in the last few months. So since the agreement with King County was adopted, city staff have been meeting regularly with King County staff to collaborate and receive updates on the Kirkland site timeline. The timeline, which is included in addendum A of your packet, lists out 11 activities and the projected date range in which each will be initiated and completed. Staff are gonna speak to each using the five categories that are outlined in the memo, which are local referral planning, pre-occupancy tenant improvements, housing operator selection, plan development, and finally local referral activation and resident move-in. Each activity also highlights columns for both the responsible and approving parties, which was outlined in the agreement that was passed earlier this year. Those parties include King County, the city of Kirkland, and the chosen operator. I'm now gonna pass it to Amanda, who's gonna walk us through each of these activities, its estimated start date and completion date, and how each activity factors into that anticipated move-in date of early 2025. Mayor, <clears throat> Deputy Mayor, Council Members. Um, as Jenna mentioned, I'm going to be going through each of the timeline activities in sequential order and giving updates. Um, we're gonna start with the local excuse me, the local referral planning. Um, as you know, uh, the agreement between the city and county uh, made provisions to provide uh, guaranteed access to local individuals experiencing homelessness. Up to 65% of the housing units at the Kirkland uh, Health Through Housing site will be allocated specifically for unhoused individuals in Kirkland and on the east side. To support that process, staff are developing uh, a network of local homeless service providers that will be able to identify eligible candidates and support them through the referral process once the site is ready to open. Earlier this year, uh, city staff hosted, uh, as well as partnering with the county, uh, an initial gathering of potential uh, members of the local uh, referral network. Uh, a list of those folks who were invited are um, in the, provided in the memo. That list continues to grow as we can continue to identify uh, potential candidates um, and uh, uh, add them to the list. So who can be a referral partner? Uh, one criteria of the local referral network is having access to HMIS. That is the Homeless Management Information System. Uh, that is a database managed by the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, um, and it helps determine initial eligibility for permanent supportive housing. Uh, referencing again the list that's in the memo, um, those folks um, are primary, their primary role uh, is working with individuals experiencing homelessness on an ongoing basis. Uh, that allows them uh, to support the candidate on an ongoing basis um, through the referral process. Uh, the city's homeless outreach coordinator, having access to HMIS, uh, will be uh, making referrals as part of the local referral network as well. Um, city staff received some best practices feedback from the county based on um, uh, uh, 
experiences of other health through housing sites um, that have already uh, rolled out regarding the local referral planning. Uh, one recommendation uh, is not activating the local referral network too soon um, before the site is expected to open. Um, activating means um, uh, having referral partners start identifying potential candidates and, and sharing that information. Uh, in addition to potential staff turnover, um, or losing contact with housing candidates, um, too much of a time gap um, creates opportunity um, for misinformation to spread, kind of like the telephone game, um, and unfortunately could, could cause harm uh, to potential candidates. Um, having a, a semi-tight timeline, the county suggests eight weeks, uh, between activating the network and opening um, referrals, um, the county has found is the ideal time period uh, to uh, help that process be successful. The other recommendation uh, the county provided is being mindful, um, also another kind of timeline, so being mindful uh, of when to capture data of local area users of homelessness, um, especially if we want to use that data to determine prioritization. Um, there are two permanent supportive housing projects that are um, planned to come on board before the Kirkland site. Um, Plymouth Crossing, uh, run by Plymouth Housing in Bellevue, has already started their, um, their referral and uh, move-in process. Um, and then there is the Health Through Housing site in Redmond. Um, they tentatively are expected to open um, in 2024. One thing I do want to note with the uh, Redmond um, Health Through Housing site is they also um, have allocated up to 65% of their um, units to local referral. Uh, however, they haven't yet defined what local referral is. Uh, the local referral planning work is anticipated to go through quarter four of 2024 or until uh, the, the referral network is activated. Um, I will discuss that a little bit more uh, in a further slide. Uh, during that time, uh, city staff will continue work on establishing um, and strengthening uh, the local referral network by continuing to identify um, eligible referral partners and building those relationships. Moving on to um, pre-occupancy improvements or construction components of the project, um, there are a few factors impacting this timeline. The Kirkland site uh, will only be operated as permanent supportive housing. Some of the other health through housing sites that have already opened up have done so initially as emergency housing um, and then will transition into permanent supportive housing as uh, construction is completed. A requirement of permanent supportive housing is that a kitchenette be in every unit. Um, so with Kirkland beginning as permanent supportive housing, construction on each unit to uh, create kitchenettes um, will have to be done um, before uh, the site can open. Um, it's worth uh, also worth noting uh, that the buildings acquired within the Health Through Housing portfolio 
um, were high-use buildings that require updates and other maintenance needs. To increase their capacity um, to move the, the health or housing construction projects forward, the county put, uh, put out an RFP for a construction contractor. Uh, that procure procurement was successful and a contractor was recently selected. The remaining uh, steps in finalizing the construction plan will include having the newly acquired contractor assess the needs of the site. Um, the county also wants the housing operator to have input on the operational layout of the site, so operator selection will also occur uh, before the construction plan is finalized. While some of the scoping and permitting has already begun, the projected start date of the major rehabilitation, that's the, the major uh, change to the kitchenettes and into the, the structure, is anticipated to begin in quarter one, 2024, and will tentatively take until quarter one, 2025 to complete. Um, as Jen mentioned, the De Deputy Director of Operations uh, with the King County Facilities Management Division is available virtually if there are any uh, uh, construction-related questions. The next timeline activity update is housing operator selection. Uh, last month, the county hosted two open houses at the Kirkland Health Through Housing site specifically for prospective housing uh, operator applicants, uh, as well as city staff in preparation for the procurement process. Uh, the county maintains a list of pre-qualified organizations for their health or housing sites by regions. Uh, you can reference that list in attachment B, or excuse me, in addendum B in the memo. Invitations to the open houses were sent by the county's procurement team to all pre-qualified candidates serving East King County. Two organizations participated. Uh, they toured the facility, they looked at existing room, office, and storage layout, and asked questions of the county staff who provided the tours. There is an anticipated third open house uh, the county is working on getting uh, scheduled uh, for organizations who were interested but weren't able to attend uh, the previous uh, open houses. Um, as uh, uh, the council may be aware, uh, the Redmond Health Through Housing site recently announced its operator, uh, the Salvation Army. Um, and now that that has been completed, um, the county's procurement team uh, now can kind of shift their bandwidth and focus on um, uh, uh, working on the Kirkland procurement for the operator. Uh, the procurement process for operator is anticipated to roll out in November when the RFP is posted. Um, and the county projects that it takes approximately 12 weeks from the time the RFP is posted and um, selection has occurred. Moving on, our next timeline activity update, uh, development of the safety and security plan, code of conduct, and community relations uh, good neighbor agreement um, is, uh, is expected to begin once the housing operator is uh, selected for the Kirkland site. Um, these plans will be created collaboratively between the city, the county, and the housing operator. 
uh, the anticipated timeline to complete these act or to complete these plans is between uh, April and July of 2024. Lastly, the activity that all other activities are leading up to is activating the local referral network to begin the referral process and eventual, eventual move in of residents. Uh, the anticipated timeline is subject to the most potential fluctuation since every activity preceding it is going to impact um, when that um, activity will begin. Um, as mentioned earlier, uh, when, dis when discussing the uh, local referral planning, once we have an exact date of when the site will open, eight weeks prior to that, we will activate the local referral network um, to begin uh, making referrals. I do want to add, um, I think, because some of the questions that came up earlier, so up to 65% of the rooms are allocated to local referrals. The other 35% will be filled through the CEA or coordinated entry for all uh, process. And currently, the county tentatively uh, projects opening referrals and welcoming residents in quarter one of, of 2025. Um, so with that, I will turn the time back over to Jen. So next steps, um, before we open it up to questions, we will continue to meet with the Health Through Housing team. Um, we currently meet with them bi-monthly, so we anticipate those meetings to continue, and we have kind of changes of staff based on the topics that we're talking about, as well as receiving updates regarding the timeline. We'll also continue engaging the local referral network, making sure that we are keeping them up to date as well, recognizing they're a critical piece to ensuring that 65% is filled. And then we will also keep you all informed as well as we receive updated information. So we will open it up for questions. Questions, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you so much to you both uh, for presenting this tonight. I know this is something that we've had a, a lot of engagement with the community, a lot of um, conversations around. And um, I have two main questions um, around the local referral process and also around the timeline. I'll start with the easier one, the local referral process. Uh, Amanda, you mentioned um, the Bellevue and the Redmond sites that are coming online uh, before this Kirkland site and um, how the Redmond site has the, also the goal of the 65% uh, locally referred from the east side. Do we have a sense of the magnitude of the need for folks for each of these facilities and how that may impact our ability to fill 65% um, upon opening with local referrals given the two other facilities opening before ours? Or before the one in our city, I should say. Yeah. Um, so understanding the magn magnitude of need, I think that's something that was slightly touched on in the earlier presentation, um, being able to, you know, how do you how do you capture a dynamic number of homelessness, right? I think that's, that's the age-old question that's very complex. Um, I think we could look at our current uh, area users of our emergency shelters, which we're finding from our community partners are consistently full. Um, we can look at other data from um, each city's um, like homeless outreach coordinator, like how many folks that they're touching, um, but is that really capturing everything? And so, um, I wish I had like a perfect answer, but I think um, there, there really is a, a difficult way because that answer is just so dynamic. Um, 
uh, yeah, I, I don't know if you had any, any more to add, Jen. I think one of the challenges in having local data is now that KCRHA has taken over the point in time count, that used to give us annual data to capture both unsheltered and sheltered homelessness. Since they have assumed that new role, they have changed how they're conducting counts. We actually don't have access to local data. So it's really hard to navigate that number and figure out already with a dynamic population what that number is. In the most recent point in time count that was conducted, there are about 500 people experiencing unsheltered homelessness east side wide. So we recognize the impacts of the pandemic, so we assume those numbers will go up. Some other more recent data that we have, now that we have the homeless outreach coordinator position on board, is we're starting to track individual contacts with folks. So not to steal Carly Thunder, but she has had contact with 100 folks in the last six months. So that gives us some really excellent data to start to tease out what that need would look like. Thank you. And can you just remind us of the number of beds of the Bellevue, Redmond, and Kirkland facilities? For the permanent supportive housing? Yes. I believe Redmond has 130. Do you know how many Plymouth has off the top of your head? I don't know how many Plymouth has. We'll have to double check and follow up. Great, thank I, you. I do know that within the code of Redmond, there's a limit that they can't have more than 100 units. So if they did want to activate all 134 rooms, they would have to get an exception signed by the planning director. Great, thank you. And my second question is around the timeline. Not surprisingly, you're gonna get some questions on that tonight. You know, I remember, you know, we heard very passionate pleas from community members, from human services providers, and from King County staff members on the urgency of this need, on the timeliness of us um, signing the agreement so that we could proceed as quickly as possible with opening these beds because people are dying, our neighbors are dying out in the streets. And so I anticipated a shorter and quicker timeline to get these beds ready uh, for folks to be able to uh, have shelter here on the east side and in our community here. Um, and so I would love to learn, I mean, looking at the timeline here, it, you know, obviously like you, you spoke, Amanda, really well to some of the details in that timeline, why it takes, you know, the 12 weeks to, you know, once the RF, RFP or, uh, uh, is out really to, to identify um, an operator and some of the process that King County has gone through. Is there anything we can do to shorten that timeline? But more importantly, that construction timeline of about a year to put kitchenettes in seems really long, and I would really love to hear more detail about that and what King County's plans are for really expediting that timeline so that we can get people housed the sooner the better. We feel the sense of urgency, and we just want to express that to King County, that these are our neighbors in our neighborhood um, here on the east side, and we want to partner with you for bringing this on as quickly as possible. I know, you know, our staff, you know, want to work with the county as much as possible as well to really make sure that we can um, get things moving as quickly as possible. So I'd really love to hear what plans are for that. How can we shorten up that timeline? You know, we're talking about a two years from when we actually sign the final agreement with King County until the beds are open, and that is an extremely long period of time. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go ahead and call on Simon. And Simon, I hope you hear this as a concern from every single member of this council. In my council calls today, that was rapid. I mean, that was it. It was like emergency equals what? So um, talk to us. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. Thank you, council members. Um, your share is exactly our concern. 
Um, and this problem is an emergency. I want to be very clear. This is an emergency and this is a crisis. And I fully recognize that uh, there are lives at stake every single day that this building is not open. Let me just start with, uh, first, I just want to convey that uh, there's a few more urgent projects at that site. And our goal is to make sure that that building, number one, is up to code for occupancy. Um, and number two is a safe place to be for folks. Um, and we want to ensure longevity. We don't want to go down the road and find out that there is a significant construction need and then having to remove or displace individuals. We want to avoid that at all costs. There's a few things um, that we are, uh, that have taken note um, since the last time we've gotten together. As uh, members of the city have just shared kitchenettes, um, sinks need to be replaced. There's some big items on this list as well, like uh, elevators that need to be replaced, uh, sprinkler systems that were never installed in that building, uh, which requires us uh, to ensure that we get occupancy uh, certificates need to be installed. Um, and there's some significant flooring that needs to be uh, installed as well. There's also going to be a permanent fence installed. So these things are going to take a little bit of time to ensure that we procure that process, that we hire the right uh, general contractor, um, and then we go through the procurement process to bring on an operator. Um, and I, and I, we are absolutely committed to getting these things done and a timeline which ensures that we open as quickly as possible. I also want to admit that I think the timeline which was shared is relatively uh, conservative as well. We look forward to bringing all of the necessary resources and we look forward to working with you all to ensure we get those permits that's required. With that, I wanna turn it over very briefly to Drew Zimmerman, um, who's the deputy director over at FMD facility. Thanks, Simon. Um, I, I just wanted to echo Simon on the work that does need to get done there. I think uh, highlighting the installation of the um, sprinkler system to the building um, being uh, perhaps one of the most important safety um, features from a facilities perspective that needs to happen um, to maybe some of your surprise, there are no sprinklers in the entire building at all. Um, which is obviously a concern to us that needs to get addressed. Um, I think from a timeline standpoint, some of the areas that we could focus on is, you know, a true partnership with the city in helping us expedite or reduce any um, wait times on permits or in review times with those. So we certainly want to continue to have open lines of communication as we're working through that process as we get our general contractor on board. Um, and then, um, you know, I, this is a permanent supportive housing location. So adding the kitchenettes is uh, something that we do need to do. Um, you know, potentially there's some opportunities for us to talk on phases of that. That's something that we have done in some other jurisdictions. Um, it's not something that is currently planned on this. We wanted to get all of that done prior to opening. Um, so that may be another area that we could um, see some flexibility uh, as well. 
Uh, thanks for that. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Um, thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, Simon and Drew, thank you for um, uh, being here to answer our questions. Um, when we were doing the work in late 2022 and early 2023, touring the facility and others, kitchenettes were something that was aware of. The lack of the sprinkler system was something that everybody was aware of. It was part of the conversation. Have there been any surprises that you've discovered in the last six months that say, okay, this is going to take this extra time, going to take, take a full year? Um, I'm not aware of any surprises that have come up. I think um, procurement processes uh, from a county level are um, very difficult and timely, and that um, you know is a big factor in the timeline associated with this for us. Um, so, no, I'm not really uh, aware of anything that has surprised us on that regard. Um, you know, I think on our end, it continues to be. Uh, you know, resources available to complete the work and uh, procurement, which takes, um, you know, a significant amount of time on our end. Um, if we can get through some of those, and I do feel like we are getting through some of the, the resource um, uh, hurdles that we've had on our end by, you know, continuing to staff up the program as much as possible, um, then, you know, we can continue to prioritize and get the work done. Is there any standardization that happens in this procurement process between the different facilities? You're assuming you've got a kitchenette requirement for the Redmond facility and the Bellevue facility as well. Well, some of the facilities already had kitchenettes, um, depending on which hotel uh, that, that was purchased in that regard. Um, so uh, standardization and some of that learning has been going on as the process has been um, going with each of the different uh, individual sites. Um, where we are uh, really trying to get ahead moving forward is doing one general procurement for all of our health through housing sites. Um, we have been approaching procurements for on a case-by-case -case basis for each individual hotel, meaning that every time this process starts over and we do new bid, new bid, new bid, um, with the one general uh, procurement for a general contractor for these sites, uh, we should be able to, um, you know, work with a firm that can handle all of the hotels at once and all of the projects at once versus us need to um, lose time rebidding every individual TI or other type of work we need to do. Uh, that is the process that we're working on right now. So we just completed uh, the architectural and engineering uh, procurement um, process. And next up on that is the general contractor one um, that we had uh, referenced earlier in the presentation. Thank you. And then um, question for Jen and Amanda, following up on what Councilmember Falcone had mentioned. In looking at some of the local referrals, and just want to confirm, Kirkland people um, depend, may be eligible for the Plymouth Crossing and the Redmond facility? And, and so it's possible that we are able to house um, some of our um, homeless before the opening of the Health Through Housing facility in Kirkland. Can you update council when those facilities open? Because it'd be interesting to just see the progress that we're making um, with, with uh, neighbors in our community. Yeah, I can share. Um, uh 
Plymouth Crossing has opened. Um, it's been open, I think, toward the end of the summer. Um, it, along with uh, a lot of permanent supportive housing, um, the trend is to kind of lease up so you don't fill them all at once, but you kind of do a slow roll up and, and Plymouth Crossing is, is the same. Uh, I will uh, note that our homeless outreach coordinator um, has uh, been partnering with, um, uh, uh, with them as well and being able to move referrals forward for Plymouth Crossing. Great, I have a final question, unless there are any more. Oh, go ahead, Councilmember Curtis. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Mayor. Um, Drew, Simon, I just also want to express that um, we, we look forward to collaborating with you, but there is some frustration that that building has been idle for a year and um, wishing that we could have done some of this TI work before we got to this point. Um, Drew, are we gonna paint the building? Um, it is not on the current TI list. However, it's certainly something we can look at if that is important. All right, thank you. I would like that. Um, what Noted. <laughs> not mustard yellow, um, whatever we can find that's more aesthetically pleasing. Um, I want to go to our process. Thank you both for the presentation, and you can tell that we're all very excited to move this forward. Um, as we go through um, the, the three agreements, the Good Neighbor Agreement, the Safety and Security Plan, um, are we, what is our process for reaching out to our community stakeholders on those plans and advising people where we are? And I'm pretty sure, I don't remember the exact terminology, Jim, but we were also going to create a neighborhood check-in group that mm -hmm. we were going to institute. So I think it's time to go back out into the community and talk about our plan and process and start building that group. Yeah, we have had a meeting already with the uh, EPS school, um, and we're going to do a community meeting and kind of a get-to-know-everyone meeting in November as a precursor to that work. I think part of the thing we're really hopeful to get going soon is the selection of the operator, because I think the operator needs to be part of that work. But we're doing the pre-work now to meet everyone and build relationships in that immediate vicinity, and that will be the kickoff for us to do. Okay. And then I don't think it was said in this presentation, but we, we, the city, are also part of the process for selecting the operator, correct? Okay, thank you. Okay, my final question is about the naming of the facility. Has there been any discussion, either at the county level or? or am I, you're, you're pointing up. <laughs> yeah, I think the that is something that we would, would need to work very closely with the county on, and I suspect that the naming protocol in that work would begin as we get closer to the selection of the operator, but I think I'll turn it back over to Simon and the team to comment on that. Uh, Madam Mayor, good question. Um, that is normally, normally we select a name in conjunction with the operator. Uh, and, and in this particular uh, case, we would select a name in conjunction with you all as well. Uh, this is something that's gonna be extremely important to the community. And why not name this fantastic opportunity after something significant uh, Kirkland community? So thank you for the question. Uh, we'll be reaching out later on next year about the naming of this facility. Mayor, I had a question. Go ahead. Um, just a question for Drew and Simon and kind of drilling in on the operator selection process. Um, you know, I, I would imagine that, that the operators that 
uh, are around this region are in, in great demand. Um, and obviously that's a critical component to have that in place and the services in place when residents arrive. So I, I'm just curious what your experiences have been with operator selection and kind of operator interest in, in perhaps other locations. And then um, are you concerned about uh, staff availability and skill set availability to, to staff that? Or is that, or do you feel like you have a, a pretty good pre-qualified list and that that's not really going to be an issue? Yeah, thank you, council member. Um, of course, we've, we have a list of qualified um, operators at 11. Um, we've had no less than three um, proposals submitted in every single health or housing scenario. Um, we look forward to ensuring that we get a robust number for this site. Um, I can tell you right now, um, there are two that are uh, significantly interested, um, but we are reaching out to all of those operators on that list. And so we look forward to, and I hope that it's going to be the case that we have no less than three proposals for this particular site. Great. So you haven't experienced any issues um, so far for other locations in mm -hmm selecting and, and hiring an operator that hasn't been a problem in timeline or getting uh, facilities up and going? Uh, we, we have faced some challenges in ensuring that uh, we're meeting the demand. And so the demand is gonna be immediate. Yeah. Um, and of course we need to give a, an appropriate runway for these operators to get up and going with their operations. Um, but in this case, because of the, the length of of time or the timeline for construction, um, as long as we are able to name an operator um, by uh, Q2, end of Q1 of 2024, um, we're going to give them a long runway to ensure that they can get their operations up and running. So we have seen some challenges in the past, but because of the long runway we have here, uh, we should not see such challenges. Great. Thank you. Really quick, because we're late. Okay, I have a really quick follow-up question. Um, Drew, you had mentioned potentially phasing in the kitchenettes, and Amanda had talked about the success, successful implementation of permanent supportive housing facilities being kind of a, a phased move-in. Is there something that could be, is that what you were, I just want to clarify, is that what you were saying earlier, that we could you could potentially be, you know, as you finish a floor or two at a time, or a wing at a time, or a certain number of units at a time, we could move folks in while construction is completing in other areas? We have done phased move-ins at other sites. Um, you know, it is uh, really needs to be in partnership with the operator and the city in that regard to make sure that it's successful and not too big of a burden on the folks that are living. Um, and there's, you know, obviously safety factors. I think if there is openness to, um, you know, we prioritize perhaps the sprinkler installation and openness to phasing the kitchenettes. Um, from the city on this, that is one way to occupy the building um, quicker. Uh, but obviously, we would need to work really closely with the operator to understand um, food needs for the residents of the building if there's not kitchenettes installed in there as well. So 
Uh, I do think that that's a possibility to potentially get some folks in sooner than later um, if all parties are um, up for doing that. Uh, we do we do have some examples of that being successful with some of our other properties. Okay, great. Something to explore. So I'm going to cut you off now. Thank you, Simon. Thank you, Drew. Jen, Amanda, you guys are done. Then let's transition over to Carly's presentation. <clears throat> Thank you, Madam Mayor. Carly Jorger is up next. And as we load up um, her deck, <clears throat> this would be the coordinated response to homelessness. Uh, this it's nice because it's almost like an inverted triangle. We started out with the homelessness authority in its broadest sense, and then the county-city collaboration around health through housing. And now Carly's going to talk about the internal work, internal work we're doing at the city with this mission-critical heart crisis um, coordinated response team. And this integrates uh, with the external network that we just talked about. So we have an internal group responding and then ultimately coordinating with our network. So over to you, Carly. Hey, thank you, Deputy City Manager. Um, good evening, Mayor, Deputy Mayor, members of the council. Uh, it's my, my pleasure to join you this evening to talk about a very exciting new initiative, the Coordinated Response to Homelessness. So in this presentation, I'll provide a brief overview of what this initiative is, uh, share some images from our new landing page about homelessness on the Kirkland website, I'll introduce the new HEART team, Homeless Assistance and Response Team, and then I'll uh, wrap it up and pass uh, this presentation over to the city manager to share some of the key takeaways from a recent site visit we did to City of Vancouver to learn about their response to homelessness. So with that, I'll turn your attention to uh, the Coordinated Response to Homelessness Initiative. Um, this initiative is managed out of the city manager's office with your city manager as the executive sponsor and, and myself as the project coordinator. And this initiative really came about because of the council's direction, action, and investment in taking a person-centered approach to helping our community members most in need. And that person-centered approach is evidenced um, by some of the projects you've heard from already this evening and some you'll hear from later on uh, at your council meeting tonight. So that's a health through housing project um, in, at the former La Quinta Inn, uh, creating a new regional crisis response agency and citing a crisis clinic in North King County, um, as well as investing in new positions at the city, such as a homeless outreach coordinator. All of those investments together gave us an incredible opportunity to maximize, streamline, and coordinate all of those resources so that we have an effective response across our system also gave us a chance to identify gaps where are we still missing um, some key resources. Then we also had an opportunity to coordinate how uh, we are communicating with the community about what happens um, when they notify us of someone living unhoused that they're concerned about. All of this together leads up to the ultimate goal of this initiative, which is to substantially reduce and prevent homelessness in Kirkland. Um, so we started off by creating a new comprehensive landing page on the city's website. Uh, you can see this at kirklandwa.gov slash homelessness or just search homelessness into um, the search bar. And we wanted to start off um, this landing page with a very clear call to action. Many of our community members want to find a way to let us know of someone that they're concerned about in the community. So we started with um, 
the call to action to, to let us know about someone unhoused by submitting an inquiry through the R. Kirkland portal. Um, then we set a infographic, these circles, um, one through five, that show what happens once you submit an R. Kirkland about someone living unhoused. That goes to our new homeless assistance and response team who will make contact within 24 hours of uh, receiving notice of someone. Next, the webpage zooms out a little bit to cover uh, the city's four-part strategy to addressing homelessness, um, which we've coined the homelessness continuum of care. This spans prevention, outreach and response, emergency shelter services, and permanent housing. There's a lot more information about all of um, these four on the website, so I'll just touch briefly on, on a few of them. Um, before focusing in on that second point, outreach and response, which is the main focus of this new initiative. Um, so for prevention, um, in 2020 uh, through 2022, the city invested over $1 million in one-time funding and rent assistance programs to, to prevent um, homelessness. Um, and in the 2023-2024 budget, the city is also investing over $350,000 a year in grant funding dedicated to rent assistance programs, so heavy, heavy uh, investment in the prevention strategy. Outreach and response, this is the main focus of the Coordinated Response to Homelessness Initiative, um, so I'll circle back on this, um, this strategy here in, in my next slide. Um, we also support emergency shelter services through direct funding or partnership with other cities as part of the Human Services Grant Awards. Um, and attached to your packet and also on the website is a, a map showing where some of those services are located in Kirkland and the east side. Then the last strategy is to invest in permanent housing. Um, there's uh, several subsets within, within this last strategy, one of which is um, permanent supportive housing where um, our, our Health Through Housing Initiative um, fits. So the city is active in all four of these um, points along the continuum of care with our central focus right now being in outreach and response. So with that, I'm very excited to introduce to you the HEART team, Homeless Assistance and Response Team. So HEART embodies that person-centered approach that we've been talking about. They provide compassionate outreach and assistance to our unhoused residents, and they also serve as a point of contact for our community members who are seeking a response um, to homelessness. We are modeling the HEART team um, after the city of Vancouver who coined a HEART team. Um, so we're just expanding uh, this network of HEART teams. Hopefully we have some other cities that, that choose to follow in our footsteps. Um, and the HEART team is an interdisciplinary team um, of folks from Parks and Community Services, the Police Department, Fire Department, the Regional Crisis Response Agency, Public Works, Planning and Building, and then the Municipal Court. So the new landing page features um, each of these team members um, and uh, um, they're already making a large impact on our community. So. Some of these positions are brand new, uh, like the homeless outreach coordinator who in the last six months has made contact with 74 households, 99 individuals, and of those, 42% have access shelter, relocated to live with family enrolled in treatment, or transitioned into housing. So I just want to make 
I'd just put a real fine point on that. In the last six months, 42% have made the next step to their goals. That is just really incredible. And we're really, really proud of the work that they are doing. So um, next on the webpage, we have um, some FAQs that the HART team can refine and add to over time as we continue to build out this initiative. And then on the right here is that map showing where um, the services are in Kirkland and the east side. Um, so with that, I will wrap it up and pass it over to the city manager. Thank you. So uh, several of us on the HART team, as well as Carly and I, had an opportunity to go down to see Vancouver, uh, Washington, to see some of their sites. A special thanks to the city manager, Eric Holmes, for letting us uh, join them. And their own HART team, which is where we stole the name, uh, met us and, and toured us around. Uh, I guess a couple observations. We got a chance to see their safe, safe pallet home communities that they opened. Um, each of these were on publicly owned properties. So that, that was a key piece of it. Um, they have dedicated sites. They have outside service providers on the sites, uh, similar to what you just heard through the health through housing. Uh, we also had a chance to look at, they have one safe parking site for primarily for um, RVs, and it was a former um, transit site that um, was a former transit bus space kind of location. So we got a chance to talk to them about that as well. Uh, we then got the chance to speak with the city manager for about half an hour, George Dugdale. Um, Carly and I got to meet with Eric and, and kind of go through the program and sort of the challenges they're facing. And one of the things that he let us know is that from 2021, they were spending almost no money um, on this issue except for uh, human services grants, similar to what Kirkland does in the, in the East Side cities. And right now, they're spending a million dollars a year to support these sites, and they anticipate that that number could double probably in the next couple of years. Um, they, have, they have a huge challenge. Um, it was a very inspiring visit. Uh, we got a chance to see the sort of uh, the people there and, and how it was really stabilized, and then we heard some wonderful stories about the folks that they actually moved um, into permanent housing, so it's, it's definitely something that works. Uh, we had some sh shots here of like really the community that was created. You know, we, we went down to see sort of safe, safe and stable homes, but we saw they really created communities. You see, there's a dog park um, in one of them. Um, I know something near and dear to Councilman Curtis's heart. There's many, many plants, and they actually had a, a community garden program that they set up at one of the sites. Uh, they also have the site set up for um, heat and cooling. So there's there's actually electrical utilities. Uh, the key takeaways, and these were near and dear to my heart as well, because they sound like some things I say a lot, but um, the first was I said, when you're going to tackle this, you cannot let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, the example here was the utilities. Their own um, permit requirements got in the way because they wanted to bury these utilities, but they were actually within a buffer zone of a creek. That sounds familiar. <laughs> and so what they did instead is they just put it on the surface. So they just said, you know, um, you have to act. Um, the other thing that they said is that this population, the situation can change very quickly. And um, one of the challenges they face is even if they are getting national recognition for these programs, their population continues to increase and they're having a huge struggle um, with more and more folks coming in. And finally, they said you have to really be innovative and try pilots and just constantly attempt things, right, just, just to act. So we learned a great deal from it. As I said, it was, it was pretty inspiring for those of us who went down. It was also pretty sobering to see that even with all the great work they're doing and then when they're spending, uh, this can become a real problem very quickly. And I think it just really reaffirmed for all of us, not just the initiative that we're doing, but also the 
whole continuum of care that the council has authorized. So um, those are kind of our key takeaways. And we're happy to answer any questions on that, but it was it was pretty um, important trip for all of us who got to go down. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't get to talk about the pallet homes. So pallet, the pallet homes themselves uh, are actually built by a company up in Everett. So they're actually uh, fairly local. Uh, these are insulated, as you can see in there, they actually have the heat, um, and then they also have the uh, potential for air conditioning. They can hold two people per unit. Um, uh, the locations we saw, they did not take children, but they did have uh, a mom and a teenage son. They also take couples. Uh, they really recommend these units. They said they're pretty extraordinary. They're pretty easy to set up, but they also say they take about six to eight weeks to get, so there's a backlog. Uh, these are running about $11,000 per unit. So, and they said the price is going up as they become more of a national story. So, um, they last, they said, roughly five to six years, and then obviously you can replace them. Um, so, and then you can adapt them for things like mobility issues, and you see the wheelchair ramp there. So, a very, very versatile group um, of structures. Councilmember Curtis. Oh, sorry, this is the last thing. I'm, I, I, I stepped on my own thing about the uh, focus on s uh, safety, stability, and community, but a couple other shots I wanted to show you, so uh, the plants. And then the uh, pallet homes actually come as a whiteboard. You can actually do grease pens on them. So we thought it was really cool to see that people actually have little messages to each other. There was someone who was sick. They said, we miss you. We hope you get better. You can see on this one she's introducing herself um, on her door. And then, of course, there's the community garden. So I uh, really neat approach to helping people in short-term housing. Councilmember Curtis. Thank you. I just <clears throat> had a question before you got off the pallet homes. So the homes do not have uh, restrooms or kitchen facilities? They, they do not. So they, they, in both, all the sites, they had a community tent site, and they had um, porta-potties and then, you know, portable water systems. So in the, the next site that they're building, they're trying to bring full-term utilities to them, but in these cases, they didn't, they didn't have them yet. So. And they did allow pets? They did, yeah. Other questions, concerns, excitement? I think we have one last slide. I'll just wrap up briefly um, with some next steps. So, so um, tomorrow we're actually hosting a homelessness response symposium for um, a group of city employees. Again, this is just to introduce the heart team, um, share, share about this new initiative, um, share about our messaging for, um, for the community about how to activate the heart team and what happens once the heart team is activated. And then again, start identifying some gaps in the system. Um, our steering team uh, will continue to coordinate. Um, a lot of our work right now is updating some administrative protocols and making those more, more clear. Um, and then um, ultimately what this is going to lead to is some um, potential policy and financial strategies that we can bring back to the council for, for deeper discussion and consideration in, in next year. And that's the end of our presentation. Thank you. Thank you, Carly. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you so much. Um, I just have to say I am so proud of the city of Kirkland for the approach that we're taking. You're talking about a people-centered approach to the homelessness crisis. Thank you for that. I am so proud that we're leading with both our hearts and our heads simultaneously. We are smart and we are compassionate and caring. So thank you for that. I'm really, really proud of that. 
Um, and there's a lot of work to do. So I'm really excited to, to hear this plan. Um, I know the focus on tonight's presentation is on the outreach and the response, a lot of it, um, that bubble on the homelessness continuum of care. I'd be interested in learning more uh, in the future, um, getting an update on some of the other areas. When I think, for example, of prevention, as was mentioned, the rental and financial assistance and the, the legal aid, I'd be really curious to know. Um, how they're currently being utilized, you know, what is the need, are they being fully resourced to meet that need, or do we need to have a conversation um, in our budget discussions around, around that. Um, also, you know, in emergency shelter services, for example, we've all seen the recommendation from King County Regional Homelessness Authority to move away from congregate shelters. What are those discussions looking like with our existing emergency shelters? Um, you know, we've, we've heard about the pallet homes tonight. Is that part of uh, the discussions that we're going to be having, but what are we going to... Um, be doing with the existing shelters that we have. I understand that this is really a heavy lift, but I'd love an update just on um, the discussions that we're having around that uh, and just other similar efforts. Um, I had a question about children, so thank you for, for raising that, <laughs> City Manager. You know that I'm, I was gonna ask about that, so that's great. Um, also, I uh, would be interested in hearing the results of the discussion tomorrow in the symposium, not necessarily in a formal way, but perhaps notes from the symposium, particularly on the gaps that are identified um, during the discussion. If I know, I, I know your last bullet point there was about updating council during our discussions uh, next year, but I'd be interested in just a quick update, like these are the main kind of gaps that we identified, rough notes could be emailed or something along those lines would be great. Yeah, I should uh, clarify on the children the, they do allow children at the RV uh, location, the safe parking. They said it's actually been extremely challenging. They, they still do it, and we actually saw some kids kind of playing and um, smiling. And But one of the things they said that's a, that's a whole new unique issue on safety is just the availability of fentanyl and drugs and that there's just a real challenge to make sure that kids are safe and they don't find something. And they said they're just they're finding a lot more of that around that they didn't used to. And um, so they're, they're really constantly evaluating what to do about families because they, they want to make sure the families are safe. But they do allow them at the, at the safe parking location. Yeah, and I would assume in our discussions about something similar that we would look to lessons learned from the safe parking program we have here in Kirkland. And, uh, you know, I'm going to raise the part of that discussion, you know, making sure similar to having the, the gardens and the dog parks that we have playgrounds for children as well and safe places for them to play as we have that discussion. Thank you. Thank you. Any other comments, questions? Carly, thank you for a lovely presentation. We're doing good work, and you keep displaying it eloquently. Uh, with that, I think we will adjourn, and we will... You live? We are back in session following a study session on three items, a King County Regional Homelessness Authority five-year plan update, a King County Health Through Housing project update, and a coordinated response to homelessness initiative briefing. This takes us to item four, honors and proclamations. Um, Council Member Falcon is going to help me with the Disability Awareness Month <coughs> proclamation. Okay. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. So we'll be declaring October of 2023 as Disability Awareness Month in Kirkland for the reasons outlined in the proclamation. I'd just like to note for the council and members of the public that more information uh, to find out more about how you can help celebrate this month and bring awareness uh, to your community can be found in the memo and the org links there. Um, and we also have here to 
Receive the proclamation. Mara Bernson, who's the executive director of Listen and Talk, will be receiving the proclamation. And you can come on up to join us. Thank you. Welcome, Mara. All right, I'll be reading a proclamation proclaiming October 2023 as Disability Awareness Month in Kirkland. Whereas Disability Awareness Month is about celebrating and being inclusive of people with all forms of disabilities, bringing cultural and social awareness around what disability is, destigmatizing conversations around disability, and encouraging people to learn more about how disability plays a role in our everyday lives. And whereas the first public policy focusing on the needs of disabled people occurred with the passage of Section 504 of the 1973 Rehabilitation Act that was a pivotal moment in United States history as it banned discrimination based on disability modeled by previous civil rights laws, which banned discrimination based on race, ethnic origin, and sex by federal fund recipients. And whereas this act made the exclusion and segregation of people with disabilities as discrimination for the first time in United States history. And whereas prior to Section 504, issues such as unemployment and lack of education were seen as inevitable consequences of the physical, mental, intellectual, or developmental disability itself, but this public policy recognized that these issues are due to societal barriers and social prejudices preventing individuals with disabilities from the same liberties and freedoms as other community members. And whereas after two decades since Section 504 had passed, the Americans with Disability Act, ADA, was signed into law by President George H.W. Bush on July 26, 1990. And whereas, since ADA was signed into law, it has helped to make society more accessible for individuals with disabilities across education, employment, medical care, and access to physical spaces. And whereas, the ADA also provides guidance for people with disabilities by providing resources about their rights, laws, and regulations. <clears throat> Excuse me. And whereas, according to, according to the Centers for Disease Control, one in four adults, or 26%, in the United States live with a disability. And while the percentage of individuals with disabilities is high, often disability is not discussed outside of medical, educational, or legal contexts. And whereas celebrating Disability Awareness Month may include volunteering with organizations that work to provide access to individuals with disabilities in a variety of ways, including sports, education, basic needs, fundraising for research, or understanding and accepting your own disability identity or that of a loved one or friend. And whereas you can learn about ways that people with disabilities are working to bring the conversation of disability to a larger audience through organizations like the National Organization on Disability, American Association of People with Disabilities, and the International Disability Alliance. Now, therefore, 
Mayor Penny Sweet, on behalf of the City Council, does hereby proclaim October 2023 as Disability Awareness Month in Kirkland and calls upon the people of Kirkland, Washington to learn more about ways to be more inclusive of people with disabilities, volunteer, and engage in a conversation with your family about what you learn. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Mayor Sweet and the City Council. My name is Mara Bernson, and I am the Executive Director of Listen and Talk. We are a nonprofit organization based here in Kirkland, Washington, that provides specialized listening and spoken language programs to families and their children who are deaf or hard of hearing. Since we moved here in September 2020, we've served hundreds of families who have utilized our specialized birth to three services, blended preschool, audiology, listening and spoken language therapy, and outreach programs that have helped deaf and hard of hearing children thrive using listening and spoken language as they graduated and moved on to become active students in their neighborhood public and private elementary, middle, high schools, trade schools, colleges, and universities. We are honored to be here tonight as the city of Kirkland recognizes the month of October as Disability Awareness Month. We thank the city of Kirkland, Mayor Penny Sweet, city council members and other community leaders in Kirkland for their time and dedication in promoting awareness and inclusion for people with disabilities, including those who are deaf and hard of hearing this month. We are proud also to be part of the Kirkland community and fully support all efforts to promote equity, diversity, inclusion, and belonging. Thank you for so much for allowing us to be partners in this important city work. Okay, we are now at item number five, communications. This is a time in our meeting when we normally hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial or scheduled for a public hearing, of which there are none scheduled this evening. Please limit your remarks to three minutes, and the council will receive up to three comments each on both sides of each issue. If you are present either in person or virtually and would like to address the council during this items from the audience period, please sign up by using the online public comment instruction link or in person using the posted QR code. For those participating by phone, please dial star nine to be recognized to speak. Community members will be called in, order, in the order in which they signed up. Items from the audience is an important part of our business meeting and we ask that everyone be treated with kindness and respect. We ask that you to please not clap or applaud after a speaker or express your disagreement with a speaker. We want everyone in Kirkland to feel welcome expressing their viewpoints regardless of content. Because they can be disruptive, signs and placards are not allowed in council chambers during our meetings, regardless of their content. <clears throat> uh, City Clerk. 
Our first speaker is virtual, and it's Jessica Rowe, and she will be followed by um, Karina O'Malley, who's also virtual. Good evening. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you. Um, my name is Jessica Rowe, Mayor and Council Members. Thank you so much for the opportunity to comment this evening. Um, I'm here tonight. I'm a land use attorney with McCullough Hill, but I'm here tonight on behalf of Carl Peterson, who um, submitted a community initiative comprehensive plan amendment for your consideration. Um, that's going to be, I believe it's item nine later tonight on your agenda, just an introduction to the Juanita plan update, as I understand it. So my goal tonight was just to introduce ourselves. I hope, I wish I was there in person, but I will be there in subsequent meetings just to um, hopefully be able to see everybody in person. But to thank you and staff for your work as you endeavor on this comprehensive plan update. And just to let you know what our, that we've submitted an amendment um, that we're, the property is the Michaels property on Juanita Drive. And we submitted the amendment last year, but it was made more sense and staff asked us to resubmit it this year with your comprehensive plan. So um, I won't go into great detail. I just wanted to flag it for you tonight. I will say the two key items that we're asking for are, you know, amendments that would be consistent with increase in height up to 70 feet and um, a removal of the density requirement, which right now is quite low, but our proposal would be to govern the site by height and other development standards. Um, and this is all to allow for residential development, probably seven stories, but we think it would be consistent with your vision, we hope for mixed use and the need for added housing in, in this area. Um, right now, the height is limited to only 26 feet, so it would preclude any redevelopment and has has precluded redevelopment on the property for some time. So um, that is all just an introduction to our amendment and to say that we're happy to hear from you and discuss more and provide more info as the process moves forward. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Rowe. And our next speaker is Karina O'Malley, who's also virtual. Bless you. Thank Welcome, you. Ms. Ms. O'Malley. Yes, thank you. Um, I noticed um, Kirkland City Council that you had quite a few items that you were being briefed on in your um, study session. And I thought it might be a good time for me to come and visit and, and chat with you about a few things. One of which is I strongly urge everyone listening to me right now to join me tomorrow night at 530 at Lake Washington United Methodist Church Wednesday dinner. We have this every other week and this is our on week. So please join us at 5.30 at the church on 132nd for a delicious dinner and a chance to meet your neighbors. Um, some of the folks at the dinner are 
housed folks that live in Kirkland or sometimes other cities, but some of the folks at the dinner are folks who live in their cars or in fact live in tents or, or other places not suitable for human habitation. Um, and it is an opportunity to have dinner with folks and meet them and to see how important it is, all of your efforts, which I really appreciate, in finding a solution to homelessness for folks in Kirkland. Uh, in the beginning of September, we had 45 people registered into our safe parking program here in Kirkland. We had 31 people asked to join our program in September. This is unprecedented for September. Usually as we go into the fall and the rainy weather, we are seeing fewer and fewer people, but the need for a safe place to be and the rise in rents and the number of people who are being priced out of their homes is a very dire situation right now. And I urge you to act with urgency in all of your uh, deliberations. Um, I saw in the packet that one of the things that you're thinking about with Health Through Housing is that um, a list of people who might use that resource shouldn't be collected right now because some of those folks may find housing in other places. But I will tell you that I spoke to a woman a year ago about health through housing and how that might be a solution for her, an option for her, and she is still waiting. And I suspect that when Kirkland's facility does open in 2025, she will still be waiting. It is not theoretical people who will be becoming homeless in the future that need this. It's people who are actually suffering right now, sleeping in their cars, developing physical issues because of that, developing mental health issues because of the strain and the stress of living outside. Um, there are folks who have been in the parking lot who, when they joined us, seemed like they had a pretty good grip on what was going on and they had a path forward and then just found so many challenges and barriers that I see them now starting to struggle with depression and anxiety and paranoia because so many things have gone wrong. And hey, Ms. I hate to interrupt you, but your time is up. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Our next speaker is Lisa McConnell, who is on site, followed by Frost, who is on site, and then Heidi Hyatt, who is virtual. Thank you. Welcome, Ms. McConnell. Good evening. Uh, my name is Lisa McConnell. I attended the recent council study sessions and the Transportation Commission meetings. I have several thoughts about the Kirkland Transportation Plan, the KTP, formerly known as the, Kirk the Transportation Master Plan. First, I learned several things at my bike valet experiences this summer. One, Kirkland's bike parking is woefully inadequate, especially so for groups and families. Two, Bike corrals and bike checks are very much appreciated at events. Three, e-bikes are bringing people back to biking in a big way. E-bikers are people who don't normally bike. E-bikers are families with powered cargo bikes with kids and all their stuff. E-bikers are young teens enjoying the freedom that bikes bring. And e-bikers are people who thought they weren't fit enough rediscover the joys of biking, even uphill. Which brings me to my second thought. In the updated KTP, we have a proposed new goal, technologies and emerging practices. 
Just as we are encouraging offices, apartment complexes, and our public spaces to include charging places for electric cars, we need to provide a secure parking system for bikes and scooters and places to charge the electric versions where we live and work. Councilmember Falcone brought up the point at the study session that we need to focus on folks who don't yet live here so that Kirkland can give them a voice and include them in our community. Likewise, we need to focus on folks who don't yet walk, bike, or take transit. I have many stories about people who say they would do more biking or let their kids walk to school if there was a safe way to do it, if there were bikes, bike lanes, if cars didn't go so fast around school zones, et cetera. For projects and policies related to vulnerable users like people who walk and bike, if you build it, they will come definitely applies. There is no crash data for roads that people are afraid or are unwilling to use. Non-use is a statement. So if you're only willing to prioritize projects based on danger or risk, you're missing opportunities to improve the whole system. Finally, it is proposed to fold in the previous goal of be an active partner into other goals and policies. The transportation plan calls out many outside agencies such as Sound Transit and neighboring cities to partner and engage with, all good. There is no mention of the city's own advisory group, the Transportation Commission. When I started the Transportation Commission, it was a group with innovative and leading edge ideas like active transportation, complete streets, and the fresh perspective that transportation is fundamentally about moving people. It used to present their ideas about the Transportation Master Plan directly to the council. It used to discuss major topics with the council. I feel the council is missing a knowledgeable and focused partner right in their own city. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. McConnell. Our next speaker is Frost, followed by Heidi Hyatt, who will be virtual. Welcome. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to give a few comments um, and ask. Could you give us your full name? Oh, Frank Frost. I live in Houghton. Um, yeah, so um, I wanted to find out, uh, will the city be doing anything to allow uh, tiny homes on private property, not just those little ones that, you know, just the rinky, you know, rinky-dink ones that uh, they were showing in the presentation, like properly built tiny homes that a person could live in for years. Um, that would certainly, like as a, kind of an ADU type of situation, uh, they would be very small, like 100, 200 square feet, something like that. Also, it would be nice if uh, there, if private homeowners could create some sort of um, like boarding house type of thing without having a really expensive and burdensome permitting process and like remodeling, like streamline the whole thing so that, you know, individual owners can be like, oh, my house has three empty rooms. I'm going to rent them out and the city's not going to give me a hard time about it. <laughs> um, and then um, speaking of the homeless situation, what is the council going to be doing for the working poor? Rental assistance is great, but affordable housing is better. What's the city going to be doing to remove barriers to building more affordable housing? Um, and third, what is the council going to do to ensure public safety when that supportive housing project starts? The Morrison Hotel in Seattle 
had skyrocketing crime in the area after it was converted to a homeless housing. And finally, um, I'd also like to ask the council to consider switching to district-based elections instead of at-large elections that we currently have. It would ensure that the council reflects cultural and the cultural and socioeconomic diversity of the city. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Frost. Our next speaker is Heidi Hyatt, who is virtual, followed by Taylor um, Oynes, who is virtual, and then Alex Zimmerman, who is on site. Okay, let's let's move to Taylor, and then we can promote Heidi if she's the call-in person. Welcome, Mr. Oynes. Oh, hey, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Well, thank you. Thank you, uh, Mayor Penny, Council, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Um, I would like to just uh, thank you guys for uh, the last, uh, gosh, it was two meetings ago, but um, I was on vacation. So for you guys' decision on behalf of all the downtown businesses, and we really appreciate it. And we felt as though you guys heard us and it was just awesome as a young person to see government work. And man, when we emailed you guys, you were responsive. Uh, I got a, had the pleasure of meeting face-to-face -face with many of you. And uh, it was really encouraging to see uh, through a stressful time, a uh, bit of uncertainty for some of us business folks, but uh, I'll tell you, it was awesome to just see government work and to see it work well and to have such a uh, available and compassionate council. It was really awesome. and. Thanks to um, Jim, Martha, Diana. I'm probably forgetting a few people, but just everybody who who made it work. And it was just awesome to see. And uh, I know it's really a thankless job. You guys don't do it for the money. Um, and you guys put in a lot of time and effort on this one topic. So we all really appreciate it and would love to offer support in the future and hopefully work together on um, other endeavors uh, and put this all behind us and um but yeah thank you guys so much and again for being available and responsive and uh my dad used to say it's really nice to be important but it's really important to be nice and i couldn't think of a group of folks who that embodies more uh it was a real pleasure and you guys never acted like you knew more than us which you guys did on almost every topic and so yeah thank you guys again and we appreciate it and look forward to uh working with you guys again so thank you thank you taylor yeah Were you able to raise Heidi? Can we do that? Sure.
Heidi, if you're on there, can you talk? Okay. Can you hear me now? And who is, and this is Heidi? This is Heidi, yes. <laughs> Hello. Go ahead. Hi, so I'm, I'm, a go, I'm a go for comment, right? Okay, I'm sorry. I just had a computer crash as I was pulling up what I was going to say. Um, I'm here on behalf of the Christian Coalition for Safe Families, a local domestic violence advocacy organization. Um, we wanted to thank you for once again recognizing Domestic Violence Awareness Month. This summer, the Washington Association of Sheriffs and Police Chiefs, WASPIC, issued a summary of crime statistics in Washington for 2022. You might have all heard that domestic violence rates went up during the lockdown years, which is true. Unfortunately, the WASPIC report speaks to an increase in crime, a drop in the number of officers available to respond to that crime, and a record homicide rate, noting a dramatic increase in homicide since 2019. WASPIC's report also notes that 45.9% of all crimes against persons were domestic violence related. That's not 10%, that's not 20%. That's almost half of all crimes against persons being committed by someone in their own household. That's shocking. But this is why the larger domestic violence advocacy community does what we do. We work to end this scourge by constantly creating awareness of domestic violence and associated issues by highlighting news stories, featuring problems and solutions, and offering resources. Overall, it's clear that there's much work to be done to cultivate healthier households in Washington State. So again, thank you for the proclamation, and thank you for standing with us in the fight for peace and justice. Thank you, Heidi. Um, and our final speaker is Alex Zimmerman. Thank you. Nizihail, my daughter, them Nazi Gestapo fascist. A mafiosi and bandita who support Iranian Muslim and Russian terrorists. My name is Alex Zimmerman. I live in Berlin for 35 years. For the last couple of weeks, almost 10 days, you know what it has been, I have three trespasses. One trespass from pa, uh, Pidgey Sound Regional Council for three months, another trespass for, for, from uh, Sound Transit for three months, and another trespass from Seattle Council for three months too. This is no co-accident. <laughs> this democratic mafia, I have 100 trespasses before, but three trespasses in the same time before November is very unique. So this Nazi Gestapo fascist, you know what it means? Democrat fascist, you know what it means? I think they scared so Bellevue City can support Alex Zimmerman. It's very possible right now because they're very aggressive. So, about fascism, what is we have right now. Yesterday, Obama and the internet have exactly the same point. What is that point right now? They told black, Obama talk black and white. Democrat scared from Donald Trump for this go and put him in jail, try put him in jail for a very long time. Guys, what is I want to explain to you? To people who are not pure freaking idiot or slave or ships who are real American and care about America and care about Constitution, what as we have for 250 years. Yep. 
I want to speak to you guys because situation is so critical right now. When American in exactly in King County, because King County right now, by my analysis, for many years, is number one fascist city in America. Yep, absolutely. So when you stand up right now, stop and work, uh, support Democrat, you know what this means. Maybe, maybe when Trump comes next year, we can make and turn America back what is we lose before. You understand? Make America greet again. Make Bellevue greet again. You know what this means? But for this reason, guys, you need stopping acting like a slave. Like a ship, you know what this means? Everybody care about personal us. I understand this. But when nothing change, we will lose America for another 30 years, I guarantee you. Russian Empire, pardon, Soviet Empire collapse is a classic example. What has happened when idiot, you know what this means, corrupt crook. Thank you, eh. Mr. Zimmerman. Thank you very much. Are there any other individuals who would like to address the council at this time? Then I will close with an apology if anyone was made uncomfortable by Mr. Zimmerman's comments. Okay, so that takes us to special presentations, and I think we're going to have a change in. Yeah, the uh, objection for the council uh, because we have uh, uh, folks from the crisis clinic here to speak uh, remotely. We're going to ask to move that presentation on the North King County Crisis Clinic before this uh, Smart City Master Plan. And so, if that's okay with the council, that's excellent. Um, and presenting will be Beth. So our Deputy City Manager of Operations, Beth Goldberg, will be introducing this topic. Excellent. I want to acknowledge that this is going to be Beth's last presentation before us, um, before she transitions into the next phase of her career. And I want to personally thank Beth for the amazing amount of work that she has accomplished on our behalf. <laughs> She'll have to listen to the recording. <laughs> I'm multitasking. Got <laughs> a girl. Um, so thank you again, and best of luck to you, Beth. Thank you very much. All right, and I will, in the interest of time, while we're getting this ready, I will uh, introduce to all of you Sarah Lopez, who is Connections Vice President of Implementation, who is um, a key person in, um, now that, uh, We've announced the siting of the crisis clinic is is playing a key role in um, making it happen. And uh, she's got a series of nine slides that we're going to walk through tonight, of course, um, available to answer questions. And without further ado, I will hand it over to Sarah. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you very much, Council. Thank you, Mayor. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Okay, great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, when Beth had uh, connected with me and asked if I would be willing to come and do an update uh, for you all, uh, I felt that uh, I was extremely flattered by the opportunity to become uh, here in front of you all and, and express kind of our sincere gratitude for this opportunity and then to provide you all with uh, the latest and greatest and, and hot off the press kind of updates. So happy to dive in and as Beth mentioned, answer any questions that you may have uh, at the end. Beth, if you wanna to go to the next slide. So I will start with just giving an update on where we are with the building uh, today. 
uh, talk a little bit about um, our community engagement efforts, which is primarily my focus right now with implementation and our team, and then um, highlight uh, a few of our next steps and, and where we are with the hiring of the local leaders. Next slide. All right, so what you all are looking at now are two pictures of our building um, on 122nd Street. Um, as far as uh, a couple key milestones, um, demo is completed. So uh, all inside, if you were to go to the building today, it is completely empty on the inside. Um, and there was quite a bit of work that had been done on that front. Um, we are continuing to work with the city of Kirkland and the Department of Health on our permitting. So they've received all of our documents and what they need from us. Um, they're reviewing that. Uh, and there's been continuous communication between um, those departments and us as far as anything that they need or any additional questions that they may have. We've been able to provide that to them. So as of today, we are on schedule for a mid-2024 opening. Um, a couple key things that I do want to point out to you all in regards to the building. Um, if you look at the picture that is on the left-hand side of the screen, where those vehicles are parked, that is what we consider to be the front door or the main entrance. Um, that is where individuals will be able to come to the center uh, and walk in uh, and be able to access our behavioral health urgent care. As a reminder, the programs that we will offer on site will be a urgent care, uh, a behavioral health urgent care, um, a 23-hour observation unit, um, and a transitions unit, or what we consider to be our outpatient care, where we provide um, ongoing appointments to individuals that are leaving our facility but need um, additional support and appointments until they're able to be reestablished with their providers um, that they have been seeing prior to maybe coming in or being established with a new provider in the area in which they reside. All of those programs are gonna be located on the first floor of that building. Um, and then on the second floor, we will have um, our two 16 bed crisis stabilization units, one dedicated for our evaluation and treatment um, or our involuntary population and one for the voluntary population. Um, I mentioned the front door being um, highlighted there on the picture um, to your left. What you can see is around the back of that building will be a separate dedicated entrance for our first responders and law enforcement. And that is intentional, of course. Um, and that is a private entrance for those individuals to be able to come in a safe manner. Um, and we've designed the building to have law enforcement, first responders be able to come into the building. They will have their own office um, right uh, as you walk in, right to the right-hand side. Our staff will be able to meet them at the back door um, and ensure that the patient is being safe um, and then There'll be a few, a couple intake rooms off of that front, that back door, and then seclusion and restraint rooms. And then um, we'll be able to take the patient from that particular area onto the floor, uh, our 23 hour um, observation unit. And that's all on the back side of the building. Um, in addition to the programs that are going to be on which floor, we will also have 24 hour security um, on site there. Uh, going around on the outside in the perimeter of the building, uh, again, to ensure safety. 
um, and to uh, um, as a response to the community and the neighbors um, had provided some feedback to us and we want to be good partners with the neighbors that we have there and with the community. And so um, we will be providing 24 hour um, security on site. Um, and I think that that is uh, the majority of the updates in regards to the building. What I'll show you now is some 3D renderings. Um, Beth, if you would go to the next slide. So these are some images of what the inside of the building will look like. I will share that um, you all are the first uh, that we've shared all of these images with. Next month, we will be um, distributing a newsletter and these pictures will be embedded into that newsletter. So you all have the first look at what these look like. And so I, I mentioned there um, on the top left-hand side of the screen, the front door. So that is our reception desk there. You'll notice um, by the blue wall, there's a hallway. Um, and then toward the right-hand side of the connection sign, there's also a second hallway. That's intentional. Um, that is so that way when a patient comes in, if they're going to be seen in our urgent care program, they're able to access urgent care through a waiting room in that first hallway. And then if someone is coming in for um, transitional services or post-discharge um, um, outpatient care, they can come into our building, be greeted by our receptionist, and then walk down the secondary um, hallway into our transitions um, clinic and whatnot. Um, all of the badges, or I mean, excuse me, all of the doors will have badge access, so it is safe and secure. Um, you can't get into a particular program or area of the building without having badge access. Um, and then also on the first floor, we will have a space for a DCR to be on site to help do evaluations timely and in partnership with us. Um, and that will also be located um, almost right directly behind the reception desk on the first floor. Sarah, what is a DCR? Um, I had a feeling you were going to ask me that <laughs> acronym. And so I apologize. Um, I don't remember what it stands for, but it is the individual that um, when somebody is coming in on uh, involuntary status, they actually do the evaluation um, to determine if they, in fact, um, need to be involuntary or not. So it's in collaboration um, with them that we would be pursuing an involuntary involuntary track or course of treatment. I believe it stands for designated crisis responder yes. and yes, it's affiliated with um, uh, uh, the court and decisions on involuntary treatment. And Sarah, later in the presentation, we'll talk about the locations in the facility that um, will handle those uh, proceedings. But that's a key position in um, making sure people are um, moving through the system. So when you, for example, hear that um, people are stuck in emergency rooms because there's no place to go, it's often because they're waiting for a DCR to do the evaluation. And then once that evaluation is done, then waiting for a bed somewhere. So hopefully this will, will streamline things. Yeah, we're very excited about that. Um, as as Beth mentioned, in, um, having them on site will speed up that process and will just um, eliminate any sort of barriers or concerns um, that that they run into today. Um, and then what you'll see there to the bottom right hand is a, a, a image of our staff lounge. So 
we will have two um, staff lounges, one for each floor. Um, we will also include a mother's room and um, staff lockers as well. Uh, you'll notice all of the color palette is very warm um, and is all continuous across the building, and, and that's obviously intentional. You'll also notice in that first picture that um, I showed you of the building, one thing that we were extremely uh, kind of blessed and grateful for is the uh, windows and the natural light that come into the building. Really and truly, these pictures don't do that justice. If you're there on site, and, and Beth can attest to that, when you are in that building and you look out and you see, you know, the tops of trees and you're surrounded um, by lots of natural light, it, it truly is pretty amazing and, and pretty um, therapeutic. So very excited to um, have all the natural light coming into the building. If you'll go to the next slide. These images here are um, examples of our 23-hour observation unit. Um, this is a recliner-based model. We will have 32 recliners there um, at the Kirkland site. You'll notice um, there are no staff offices. That's intentional. We have our peers and our techs and our teams out on the floor um, interacting, talking with, and engaging with our patients. Um, you will see there is a nursing bubble um, to on the right hand side of that picture, the picture on the right hand side, the left hand side of that picture, you'll see the nursing bubble there. Um, it's designed to ensure um, line of sight throughout the entire thing. So um, you'll notice there are two columns. There are a few columns that we could not get rid of, obviously, for structural reasons. And so what we do in, in those cases are we train our staff and it's all about placement to ensure line of sight and to ensure safety. So we would put staff um, directly behind that column, again, to ensure safety and line of sight is maintained. Um, the calm colors are continued throughout this entire um, wing here. Um, and one thing that's really unique is you'll notice there are Pacific uh, Northwest images embedded onto the walls. Um, what was really cool is we had an opportunity to tour the University of Washington Behavioral Health Institute, and one of the things that they had incorporated were these um, images, and they were looking at hiring a local artist there, and they actually had put out a bid for a local artist and got quite a few inquiries back. Um, the artist that they chose is absolutely amazing. Um, and one of the things that they learned, though, is as he was doing his work on the walls, um, he's a very uh, 3D type of artist. And so what they found was while he was an amazing artist and his skills you know, were unmatched, it really wasn't an ideal situation for a behavioral health um the behavioral health population, just because um, the texture of the walls and um, it could lead to some, maybe some dimension, dimensional issues and whatnot. And so they shared with us that feedback and we then will take that back into our design to ensure that we choose images that um, capture the North Pacific Northwest, but you know are also um, mindful of the population that we're serving and the environment in which they are. And maybe um, and, and, if I could just jump in with a little, because when Sarah and I were talking about this this afternoon, I was having a hard time visualizing what was 3D. And what she described for me and what um, was more meaningful to me was that there were more like relief maps where you could, you know, kind of touch the mountains and things like that. So um, that this will be flat to the wall. 
Mm-hmm. Thanks, Beth. Um, and the last point is just, again, the the natural lighting that is able to come through simply because, um, you know, it's 360 um, degree windows is amazing. Next slide. These here are images of our crisis stabilization units. These are on the second floor of the building. Um, the colors are continuous, warm colors. Um, we encourage the individuals to be out in the day room. The day room there um, is the space in which you're looking at. The doors um, along the backside of both of those images are the room, the patient rooms. Um, we do not lock the patient doors. We do not, you know, make the patients come out of their rooms, but we do encourage them to come into the day, the day room to engage in um, groups and to socialize and to engage in programming that occurs throughout the entire day. Um, all of the furniture is weighted, of course, for safety um, measures as well as anti-ligature furniture. Um, so there are, is no safety risk associated um, with those pieces of furniture. Um, all of the rooms are built along the perimeter of the building, and that's intentional. So that way they have windows that allow the natural light to come into their um, bedrooms. And there are 10 single occupancy rooms and three double occupancy rooms. Um, again, each one of these units will have 16 beds. A couple other areas that I do want to touch on that I um, didn't at the beginning on the second floor is we will also, in addition to having these two units, the second floor will also have two large training rooms right off of the elevator. Um, and that really is to encourage community-based trainings. We can um, house CIT trainings. We um, designed the facility to have a gun safe there um, in the training room. So that way, if um, officers wanted to come to do a training there on site and they needed to or wanted to disarm, they could and felt safe about um, their um, weapons and whatnot. Um, we want to encourage community engagement at the facility. We think you know the more we can bring the community to this building to engage in various different trainings, the more we or the more we reduce the stigma around behavioral health or that building is, you know, for, oh, those crazy people go there or any of those type of um, terms or stigmas that live within um, a community, maybe because people just aren't aware or don't know, the more we can bring the community to the building, the, the, the more we can reduce that. Um, the other design feature that was really thought through was um, in addition to the designated crisis responder, the DCR that will do the assessments, we will have two um, offices for attorneys there um, on site on the second floor, as well as a virtual courtroom to be able to do the hearings there on site. Next slide. Uh oh, did you? Um, I've advanced it. We can see the next slide here. Can you see it? There? I cannot see it. Okay. Well, we have advanced it. Um, okay. Oh, there it goes. Okay. It's just on a delay. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. Um, all right. So switching gears a little bit from the building and the images of what that building will look like. Um, some of our efforts to date have really been around um, community outreach and engagement with key stakeholders. 
my role is being um, a part of our implementation team and leading these implementation efforts really is to spend as much time as I possibly can in the community learning the lay of land of, of Washington. And so I, I think of this as three kind of um, opportunities. One is as we meet with various different stakeholders and groups, what is working today? And, and we don't need to touch it. We just need to use it. And we can access these particular resources and systems and flows that are in place today. The second area is what is potentially a gap today, but by us coming to market are, is filling that gap. And so really our role is to educate as many stakeholders as possible of who we are, what we do, what we can provide and how we can help. And then the last thing is even with us coming to market and what's already been built as um, the system, what are still gaps today that we need to be mindful of and think through so that way when we do open our doors, there's not as many, oh, I didn't, I didn't think of that or, oh, I'm not sure about that. And we try to eliminate those challenges as many as possible up front. And so we've spent quite a bit of time. I've listed um, many of the stakeholders, not all, but many of the stakeholders that we have engaged um, over the last few months and will continue to engage um, prior to opening up our doors and then beyond opening up our doors, continuing that relationship and partnership. So in the first box there, really uh, what I would highlight here is we have spent quite a bit of time with the hospitals in the surrounding area. Um, for this uh, conversation and for the sake of time, I'll really focus on Evergreen. Evergreen is the hospital that is the closest to our facility. And we uh, have met with them several times. We are in um, strong communication with Monique Gablehouse and her team talking through what are the challenges that they face with the patients that are um, coming to the hospital, but maybe are better served and more appropriately served um, outside of an emergency room. So there's no medical needs. It's really behavioral health related and how can we support and help? Um, and then vice versa, talking with them about, we have a no wrong door policy. We will take and treat any individual that comes to our center that is in a behavioral health acute crisis. Sarah, we've lost your sound. Hmm. Not getting anything. Okay, how about now? Now we gotcha. Okay. Well, I will be I will be quick. So um uh, what I was just saying is there is an uh, there is a, an opportunity for us to um, take a patient that we have that does um, need to be transferred to the hospital because of an acute medical reason. So just working with Evergreen on what that flow looks like and how do we partner to ensure that we are being timely and efficient with those particular handoffs and in um, collaboration. Uh, in addition, we've met with quite a few other hospitals as, as I've listed on, on the slide. I'll skip um, the uh, social determinants of health um, providers and resources just for a second. Move on to first responders and law enforcement. We have had the um, opportunity to speak uh, multiple times with Chief Harris um, and the uh, other chiefs in the surrounding cities. We've had uh, an opportunity to speak to the Eastside Police Chiefs um, last month. We had an opportunity to present at the Eastside Fire Chiefs Association. We also met with um, 
uh, Captain, or I'm sorry, Chief Sanford at, at the firehouse there with his uh, team. We've met with um, the EMS director. And again, just building that relationship and building that camaraderie and that um, trust. Uh, when we say we can take any patient that comes to us and we want them to bring these individuals that they see today, um, it's different from maybe what they experience. And so we've really spent quite a bit of time just talking with um, law enforcement around what we can do and how we want to partner um, all the way up to how we design the facility, ensuring that there's a space for first responders and law enforcement to come in, grab a snack, have water, take a second, do paperwork if they need to, have their own designated space there on site. Um, and then the other group of individuals that um, we have spent some time with um, is educational institutes. So we have met with some of the surrounding universities and um, two-year schools and um, other institutes to talk through what our internship opportunities look like, our um, practicum opportunities look like, training opportunities look like. Um, and that is because we recognize that part of our role is to build workforce. And so um, we wanna partner with these educational institutes to have um, these things established prior to us opening up our doors. So we have met with multiple different schools, University of Washington, um, Lake Forest, Park Institute. Um, I, uh, I forgot the, the last part of that, um, that uh, title. Um, however, I've just spent quite a bit of time um, there uh, in the surrounding areas, kind of building what needs to be done. And some of the feedback that we've gotten is um, if there's a way to have paid internships or paid practicums, we should you know, consider that because that would um, generate additional interest. So we're working on various different programs to build workforce um, in the area. Yes, sir. I think that you probably mean Lake Washington Institute of Technology. Yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you very I've much. Got, I've got a question from Council Member Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for this detail. I have a question here. You mentioned um, your no wrong door policy and that you'll take um, in any individuals who are in behavioral health crisis. Can you please clarify if that's um, any individuals 18 and older? And if so, what happens uh, with children and youth uh, when when they come through your door? And I mentioned that also because on the list of hospital I, hospitals, I don't see Seattle's, Seattle Children's Hospital listed there which is often the go-to place for families in the area for children in behavioral health crisis, uh, which I would assume would be an important partner if in the case where um, children or youth walk through your door. Sure. So our facility is 18 um, years and older, so we serve adults. Um, and we, if somebody had come in either with their children or a child has come in because maybe they're coming into urgent care, they're not exactly sure where to go. We wouldn't turn them away. What we would do is then find the appropriate place to send them and ensure that they got to the next place. Um, it wouldn't be us because again, we wouldn't be licensed and we wouldn't be able to provide um, crisis services to youth, um, but we wouldn't turn somebody away. We would help them navigate to the next appropriate step. Thank you, Sarah. And that was the response I was anticipating, um, which is why my question was, are we building relationships with the um, children behavioral, children's behavioral health resources in the region so that, that those relationships are established uh, in advance of those types of situations? 
Yes, ma'am. So these are this list here is not extensive, nor is it, you know, to, to be considered final by any means. These are just the individuals that we've reached out to to date. We have quite a bit of work to do in front of us. I, I recognize that wholeheartedly. And there's quite a bit of entities and individuals um, that are not listed on this slide. And part of today was hoping that when we do present and we do talk about these are the people that we've met with or what the intent is, part of the, getting back from you all is maybe entities or people that you know that, hey, Sarah, you need to be meeting with so-and-so, or let me make you a warm introduction to this particular hospital or whatnot. And we are happy to meet with as many um, entities and individuals and people as we possibly can prior to, and then recognize that once we hire local leadership and they're on the ground, they'll be engaging those conversations much more regularly and ongoingly and post open, you know, beyond um, when I'm not necessarily in market as, as much. I do have one additional suggestion is that you add the court, the judge and our municipal court. Go ahead and finish your presentation. Yes, ma'am. Um, so the only uh, other thing that I would like to just state on this slide um, for just to kind of bring awareness to is as we've been meeting with um, the various different providers, HopeLink, um, Lyft, uh, Crisis Connections, the 211 division of Crisis Connections, which is solely, you know, dedicated to resources and providing um, individuals with um, resources surrounding housing and food and um, transportation and whatnot. Um, one of the things that has continually come up is just around transportation. And so again, while we're still in the beginning phases of trying to dig in and really understand what are all of the programs available, what are all of the resources available for our patients, um, it's just an area that I you know that I've expressed to Beth um, you know, I'm, I'm a little concerned about transportation or help me really understand all of the things that um, are available um, as, as I've shared uh, or as I sat in the racer board, they've shared a couple stories of just patients declining um, help or whatnot because, you know, being worried that they were going to get bills associated with transportation. So it's just very top of mind for me. And it's very much something that is has come up in a few different forums around how can we solve this transportation issue. Um, and so I recognize wholeheartedly that I, I need to do due diligence to understand the lay of the land and, and what programs exist, but also recognizing that what doesn't exist today and, and how can we um, fill in and support and, and whatnot. And maybe if I could interject there. So it's um, not so much transportation when individuals leave the clinic because connections will have that arranged um, and make sure that individuals leaving um, can get to their next destination. It's for follow-up access to the clinic, access to follow-up care. We have heard from RACER that they have encountered uh, similar problems. And what um, I learned from Sarah about a month ago is that in Arizona, they actually dedicate a portion of their Medicaid dollars to running a, a transport system for individuals with behavioral health issues that they can use to get to and from appointments and, and things of that nature. Um, we don't have that here. Um, I have suggested as uh, Sarah is um, exploring this, this topic um, that there may be opportunities with the renewal of the EMS levy 
potentially through the crisis clinic levy and um, opportunities to partner with uh, King County Metro and um, Sarah has started down that path, but that might be an issue um, after I'm gone that um, the Kirkland City Council um, may be interested in um, in exploring because it does seem like it could be um, an important gap to fill, not just for our clinic, but for future clinics as well. And that's another area where Hope Link might be helpful. Correct, and I believe Sarah is meeting with Hope Link, and there's a transportation group. What's the name of the transportation group, Sarah? It's called the Eastside Easy Rider Collaborative, which I am a part of, and I've been. Uh, we had a, an opportunity with Heather Clark, um, and then um, she's connecting me with the Eastside uh, Mobility um, Coalition or the Mobility Coalition, um, and being a, and a being a active participant in that group as well. Great. There are also metro resources. Great. Thank you, Mayor. All right. Next slide. All right. So as far as next steps go, uh, we will continue to work with the city of Kirkland through the permitting process. Uh, we'll continue, as I mentioned, to build rapport and relationship with key stakeholders and community members. Um, the uh, forums in which we participate today are um, in the racer board meetings. We have a presence in the um, crisis care uh, levy conversation around um, building what those um, crisis centers will look like in the future, um, attending King County Mobility Coalition meetings, as I mentioned, and then being in market as frequently as possible um, to meet with as many players to understand kind of gaps to um, make sure that we get our name out there and that people are aware that we're coming to market, but also that we're doing our due diligence to know what is in existence and how do we um, contribute and add to the system that is already in place. Um, and then we will be hiring uh, local leaders. So we are looking to post some of our leadership positions at, by the end of this year, early um, part of next year. So this includes a market vice president, provider relations manager to do similar work that I'm doing um, today with building those relationships and um, kind of putting boots on the ground and, and meeting with people in the communities, um, and then a medical director. Um, our, the hiring of our frontline staff will come closer to opening. Um, and then one additional thing um, that I did want to mention was we had started a newsletter, um, an, elect an electronic newsletter that will be um, going out via email. And so if it's something that you are interested in to receive updates from Connections, we are absolutely happy to put you on the distribution list. And, and Beth, maybe you and I can connect um, to ensure that I have all of the right names and all of the right um, people um, assigned to that distribution. Um, but that should be going out um, next month and we'll have regular updates as to where we are, what's next, um, and all of those things that I, similar to what I presented this evening. And that is my presentation. Well, you've been doing a lot of work, Sarah. So is Beth. <laughs> this is great. Um, I think this really filled us with a great deal of information. And it, it feels really good to see how far you've come. So we're excited. Thank you. We are very excited as well. Um, this has really been uh, 
this has really been just an honor to be a part of. And, and I know that sounds cliche because I work for Connections, but just building these relationships and seeing an idea come to fruition has really been truly rewarding and very exciting. So I thank you the, for the opportunity. Um, and Beth, thank you for um, suggesting that I come. I appreciate it. Well, thank you both. Thank you, Sarah. And with that, I think we can move on to our Smart City Master Plan update. Beth, I'm sorry, are you done? Yes, I'm trying to get out of the presentation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, before uh, this next topic starts, I want to um, acknowledge that our last presentation, we got the update on the DEIB roadmap, and one of the topics that that was uh, to start to phase out um, Nomenclature like master plans. So we had a couple master plans underway as that's happening. One of them was the transportation master plan. Another was this smart city master plan. Uh, but I just want to give the council a heads up that we're actually going to be bringing options to the council for sort of tiers of plans using alternative titles. So that's probably going to be coming to you in November, early December for discussion so that new appropriate titles will sort of become embedded in the comp plan going forward. So um, so I just want to know, we're, we're very cognizant of this and we are phasing it out. We'll be bringing those choices to you soon. And I um, uh, want to say that before I introduce this topic. Okay, question from Council Member Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Will that be retroactive? So like for this plan, transportation plan, it would it would not just be moving forward, but it would be retroactive to plans we've already adopted as well. Is that true? Yeah, that would be the intent. Is okay. to, and whether or not you have to take formal action to do all that, but we would sort of lay out all of the places where those titles are and then also how we would decide what things are going forward, you know. So I think there's some good options out there that we'll be bringing to you, but be, I think, a thoughtful discussion for the council. All right, with that, I have Adam Weinstein, our Director of Planning and Billing. All right, thanks, City Manager. Good evening, uh, Mayor Sweet, Deputy Mayor Arnold, and council members. So tonight is really just an informational briefing on the Smart City Plan. Um, we have about 10 slides, it should take about 10 minutes. Um, I'm going to go over the first four, and then I'll hand it off to Zhaneng Zhang, who was our fearless leader for this project. She managed the overall project. And I, I should also mention that we have um, our really great consultants as well, um, online as well, Erin um, King and Bruno Peters from Arcadis IBI Group. Um, we can go to the next slide. So. Um, this next slide really answers two key questions. One is, you know, what is a smart city program in Kirkland? And then two is, why are we doing this uh, smart city plan in the first place? And just, you know, in short, the smart city program is really just about using technology to make the city and the city government um, better. And then all of that, all that means in terms of sustainability and equity and livability. Our and, fearless leader for this project, oh. humanity overall project. <laughs> wow, this is like a doubly good presentation. Yeah, you get you get it twice. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, we could use some work on the technology, maybe. Um, so, um, you know, to answer the why question, why are we doing this in the first place? Um, this is a little bit of a different plan than you're probably used to seeing. Um, this is not mainly about coming up with a big, robust list of new projects. Um, integrating technology, although we have some new projects that are in the plan. Um, we're already using technology in lots of effective ways in the city, um, and we're using technology to implement elements of our functional plans, so things like the capital improvement program, the um, fire strategic plan, the pros plan, other plans as well. Um, but the projects 
uh, that we're using technology for are not necessarily talking to each other um, to realize cross-departmental benefits to the extent that we desire. Um, and then we also don't have a great way, or we didn't have a great way of vetting new projects under a bigger umbrella to make sure that they're maximizing achievement of city objectives. Um, we can go to the next slide. And so that's really what the, the Smart City Master Plan uh, seeks to do. Um, this is just a timeline showing you how we developed the Smart City Plan. Um, it was budgeted back in 2019. Um, and we had this really, really great opportunity with the creation of our um, Resilience and Technology Officer, which is Jean Ng's position, back in 2021, to use data to do a better job um, planning um, and then doing things also like creating a housing dashboard so that we could use empirical data to shape our policy. Um, but it also gave us the opportunity to be really thoughtful about how we use technology and to make sure that the technology is really well integrated um, and also supportive of what we want to be as a city. Um, and so we spent a lot of time um, in the creation of the Smart City Plan um, as a Smart City Working Group, which comprised multiple departments, um, thinking about what is the vision for um, Smart City in Kirkland, what are the goals. Um, we spent a lot of time reviewing our own plans and figuring out how those work and interface with each other. Um, and then we also looked a lot at other cities, Smart City Master Plans, um, and then, yeah, spent a good amount of time thinking about the government governance structure so that we could um, actually implement um, the plan effectively. Um, go to the next slide. Um, we love guiding principles um, and planning and building and other departments as well. And we found these to be really helpful in sort of shaping the work effort. Um, and some of these reflect points that I already made in, in previous slides. But the first guiding principle is that you know, the Smart City Master Plan should really reflect the way we want to work as a city and want to work on projects, which is that um, we work together as departments, um, coordinating with other departments, sharing knowledge. There's less of um, a silo approach to implementing projects because an individual project spearheaded by, say, the Public Works Department or spearheaded by the Parks Department might have other benefits for other departments um, to help realize citywide initiatives. Um, second guiding principle, we want to implement the uh, smart city plan, you know, not by creating a whole new department or a whole new bureaucratic apparatus, but by using the existing city structures and departments that we have, um, but still giving city departments autonomy to advance projects to get their functional plans actually implemented. Um, and then the last guiding principle is, um, yeah, this is really not about adopting technology for technology's sake, um, but it's really about using existing service needs to drive um, our adoption of new technology so that when new technologies come along, we evaluate them in the context of what we can get done in our existing functional plans and what projects we can check off of the projects that we identified in the Smart City Master Plan, not because the new technology is exciting um, or novel. Um, and with that, I will hand it over to Jean Ning, um, who will take us through the next uh, couple slides. Okay. Good evening, Jean Ning. All right. Thanks, Adam. Good evening, Madam Mayor and City Council. I'm Shani Jen, the Resilience Technology Officer. I'm excited to be here to present the essential elements of our Smart City Master Plan. The first key element is about our plan's vision, mission, and goals. So as shown here, our vision is a simple and a profound. Can you go back? Can you go back to the vision slides? Yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, uh, 
Our vision is to thoughtfully use technology and information to improve people's lives, and our mission is to continually improve the city by implementing smart, innovative solutions that support operational efficiency and connect to people. These statements sets the foundation for our smart city program and guides our plan recommendations. So we have distilled those uh, principles into five plan goals areas, which includes expand mobility, increase operational efficiencies, enhance the community resources, improve city infrastructure, and enable a safe and secure and equitable community. We aim to uh, advancing these goals through effective governance and implementation of various initiatives and projects. Next slides. So the second key elements of our plan is the governance framework. The purpose of the smart city government uh, governance framework is to establish a sustainable structure that manages ongoing innovation and collaboration to meet broader citywide goals, as Adam mentioned earlier. Um, so this framework has three components the structure, the process, and the tools. This slide outlines our program's governance structure, highlighting key roles and responsibilities. So to launch the Smart City program, we will leverage existing infrastructure, apply best practices, and use intake assessment and prioritization tools to identify and manage Smart City initiatives. Next slide. As illustrated here, our governance framework incorporates practical tools that ensure we select projects and coordination are effective. So the intake tools looks at potential outcomes, benefits across multiple departments and data integration possibility to determine project feasibility. And the assessment tool categorize potential projects into three types primary, secondary, or tertiary, based on their alignment with our smart city program. And the prioritization tool evaluates projects using smart city criteria, such as impacts, future readiness, implementation readiness, and the resources requirements. So the nice things about this governance framework is it seems seamlessly integration into our existing city structure making smart city thinking an integral part of our city's operations. Next slide. Yeah, the third element of our plan is the key initiatives. These initiatives are overarching activities that supports our plan goals and contains projects. So after extensive work, our project team has identified five key initiatives, which are summarized in this table, each with a supporting projects, high-level estimated staff effort and rough costs. These initiatives will drive up our Smart City program forward. We can uh, take a quick look at a few examples. So for Smart City program operations, we'll include, including stand up to the governance framework and identifying key contributors. For data collection, management, and sharing, we'll focus on enhancing data governance and constructing a city performance dashboard. 
and technology expansion and streamlining will begin with a fiber expansion assessment. And for city operation and uh, community engagement, we're including enhancing services using artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. For mobility uh, management, we're including ongoing support for cities downtown parking management and other innovative solutions. So next slide, please. So our next key elements is the path to implementation. This chart illustrates the relative priority and timing for recommended projects and key milestones. So you can see our near-term priority tasks will include smart city program development and key contributor identification, refinement of data governance and related policies, and define high priority services needs and scope of work, the top three examples will be like supporting downtown parking technology and assess opportunities for fiber expansion and enhance city services through AI and emerging technology. So this task serves as initial building blocks on the path to realizing our plan's vision. So we're excited about this very first smart city master plan and its potential to improve cities operations and overall quality of life for all. So this is my high level overview of uh, key elements within our plan. And I want to extend our heartfelt thanks to the city council and the city manager for your support and funding for this project and to the entire project team and along with the, our consultants for, the, for their tireless efforts in crafting this plan. So this is it. And we're ready for questions, if any. Okay. Council, more data? Uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. And thank you, Jianning and Adam uh, for the presentation. Uh, a couple of brief comments on this. First, for the city manager, I appreciate that you're looking at the nomenclature for our, uh, our, our planning process. Uh, beyond the DIB feedback piece, it's really about setting expectations. We have some strategic plans that really set out a 10 or 20 year vision that we're gonna make progress on where we've used the term master plan in the past. Um, it, it's the sort of thing that provides multi-year guidance to the community and allows, uh, for council to set policy. This is um, much more of an implementation plan and internally focused. It's doing some really important work. I do hope that um, a couple things, Jean-Ning, that um, council will be able to provide some feedback on as you're going forward. One is the data governance framework. When we're looking at the data that we're, we're collecting, we really have a, a policy issue of what data are we collecting? What is it that we're going to be uh, story, how do we protect, protect people's privacy, and what is, it, what is things that we want to publish in an open data kind of way to allow partners and others to help meet our goals. And there's some tension between those considerations, and I think that's the sort of thing that I think council will want to provide some feedback on as we, we look at how we use um, data. And then um, also, you know, as, as you look at some of the specific um, uh, projects that are part of this smart city plan. There are some that I think are gonna be of interest 
to the community, and some are um, really important work that's happening uh, internally that's going to pay dividends that uh, will be less um, of, of interest, but particularly um, the, the work on mobility enhancements, downtown parking, um, the uh, uh, park access, and um, things where uh, the public uh, sees the benefit or is interacting with are the sort of things we're going to need to surface more to say, uh, communicate to stakeholders about what we're doing and doing other things. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Any further discussion? I can maybe just build on that for one second. So I think those are great comments, uh, Deputy Mayor Arnold. Um, one thing that we didn't quite highlight as well is that what will happen if, after the internal process is all of the proposals come back to the council. So for example, these turn into CIP projects or budget asks or things like that. So this isn't to give ourselves permission to go off and do something. It's really to like come to you and say, this group has given us its stamp of approval to be a funded project in the CIP for next year. So it's that kind of thing. So I think there is a lot of opportunity for that interface with the council um, coming out of this process, really. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Janine. Thanks. And I think with that, that takes us to the consent agenda. Before I ask for a motion, I'd like to ask Deputy Mayor Arnold for an audit of the or to present the audit of accounts. Thank you, Madam Mayor. We had payroll in the amount of $5,934,536.35 and bills in the amount of $7,857,450.17. Is a high one. <laughs> um, can I get a motion to approve the consent calendar? Second. It's been moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Deputy Mayor Arnold, to accept the consent calendar. Any discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Takes us to our business agenda. Uh, the first item on our business agenda is the Juanita and Kingsgate neighborhood plans update. So just want to do a quick time check. This is not hugely lengthy, but it's a little bit longer than a special presentation. So I don't know if the council wants to take its break now or after the presentation. I think we, we want to plow through. We're going to plow through. All right. <clears throat> Great. <laughs> Thank you. Okay. So... Um, as I said, the goal here is to check in on our 2023 Juanita and Kingsgate Neighborhood Plan update. Um, our senior planner, Leander Baker-Lewis, is going to make the presentation. Uh, it's really to bring council up to speed, but also to get your initial feedback uh, and questions um, as we move forward on these plan updates. Great. Uh, so with that, Leandra, welcome. Good evening. Uh, thank you for your time tonight, Madam Mayor, Deputy Mayor, and council members. Can everyone hear me okay? You're great. Okay, and my slides are visible? They are. Okay, great. Well, we will just kick it off. Um, as I mentioned, or as was mentioned, my name is Leandra, and I work as a senior planner within the planning and building department. On this year's planning work program is an update of the Juanita and Kingsgate neighborhood plan chapters of the comprehensive plan. So tonight, uh, we just wanted to brief you on that process that we have planned for the updates and receive your feedback on any additional steps that you might recommend for public outreach, for the plan process itself, and hear about any study issues that you may be aware of. I have an intro slide, 10 slides of information, and then we can open it up for discussion. And just for common knowledge, I will be the staff contact for both neighborhoods. 
All right. Just to orient you all a bit, um, the boundaries and land use districts for both neighborhoods are shown with our land use maps on the right. I wanted to just indicate what some of the the designations are. So here um, you can see there are some red commercial centers. So for Kingsgate, this is indicative of the Kingsgate Commercial Center here to the right. And then uh, we have our North Juanita and South Juanita um, commercial centers as well. Right, my laser pointer is being rogue. Um, this, the main slide takeaway here is that these areas are highly um, de dedicated to low density residential land use. The pie charts on the left kind of illustrate a similar story, um, but it should be noted that within these low density residential areas, middle housing development such as ADU and cottage development are approved and gaining traction, I would say. Uh, within some of the commercial zones, it should be noted as well that uh, mixed use development is allowed and the commercial zones within both neighborhoods do require affordable housing compliance for development of any um, multifamily buildings with more than four dwelling units. Here we have some demographic data displayed for the Juanita neighborhood. Uh, we have both the racial distribution of the neighborhood being compared to overall city distribution, as well as the area median income for the, um, for the neighborhood compared to citywide AMI. As mentioned earlier this evening, <clears throat> we have received proposals from property owners in Juanita to study land use changes in conjunction with the neighborhood plan update. We have uh, the Goodwill site, which is located at 9826 Northeast 132nd Street. Um, the property owner of three adjacent parcels located in that northwest corner of the Northeast 132nd Street and 100th Avenue intersection are requesting requesting that the city either amend the Kirkland zoning code or redesignate the zoning of the subject property to increase the maximum allowed height from 35 to 75 feet um, and, and change density allowances to accommodate for approximately 500 to 600 residential units, as well as about 10,000 to 15,000 square feet of commercial retail space. We... Similarly, as Jessica mentioned um, during our items from the audience, we have submit or we have a request submitted from the owner of the Michaels site at 9755 Northeast Juanita Drive. Um, that was a previously submitted community amendment request um, that was deferred to be studied during this time where the Juanita neighborhood plan process has been underway or is now getting underway. Uh, the the proposal would include um, an increase in the allowed building height from 26 feet to 70 feet. It would also include the elimination of residential density restrictions and possibly revisions to the uh, Shoreline Master Program to accommodate those added height and densities that were requested. All right, moving right along to Kingsgate, uh, here is some demographic data listed similarly for the Kingsgate neighborhood. Uh, we have the area median income 
for the neighborhood in relation to the city as a whole on the right and the racial distribution indicated on the left. Um, the graph on the left makes it pretty clear that when compared to the city totals, the Kingsgate area has a greater percentage of non-white residents in almost every racial category, the outlier being the American Indian and Alaskan Native uh, population, where the percentage totals are minutely lower than the overall city total. The AMI comparison um, shows an approximate gap of about $24,000 annually between the residents in Kingsgate and the citywide average. And it should be noted that lower income individuals and marginalized racial and ethnic groups often do face reduced access to things like quality health care services and have fewer options for housing and structural factors like limited economic opportunity, cultural barriers, and discrimination contribute to those inequities and really highlight the interconnected nature of race, income disparities, as well as health disparities. So given what we know about the neighborhoods currently, some goals for this neighborhood plan update process include a completion by the end of 2024 to be adopted with the periodic comprehensive plan amendments. We'll also be working to reduce the redundancy between the neighborhood plans and the general elements of the comprehensive plan, making the plans a little bit more digestible and streamlined. Uh, we also really look forward to providing an opportunity for the neighborhoods to describe what's unique about their neighborhood, what they love, what they want to see more of, and revise policies for changes that may have occurred since the last update of these plans, which was back in 2015. They'll also be given a chance to reevaluate their vision statements. And one of the most important goals we have for this process is to conduct an active and equitable participation process. Uh, we really want to make sure that Kirkland is a place where everyone feels like they belong. And to do that, we are amplifying and uplifting the voices of the people and the communities who have maybe historically been excluded from policy decision making. So staff has been given clear direction on this uh, to seek out stronger, more strategic engagement efforts through several resolutions that have passed. And given those resolutions, we will be working to develop community engagement processes that are centered around communities of color, as well as um, other po priority populations, which I will um, describe in, a, in just a minute. But uh, more recently, the DEIB, the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging five-year roadmap was another resolution that was adopted and has really solidified the goals and objectives to ensure that the perspectives and the insights and the voices of these historically marginalized groups are included in the creation of new plans such as these. So with that direction, we are going to be actively seeking out participation from what we are coining as a uh, priority populations, which include people of racial and ethnic backgrounds of all kinds, folks from a diverse range of income brackets, our youth, our disabled, our LGBTQIA plus community. We're also really interested in hearing what renters in both communities have to say about their neighborhoods and the barriers that they might face. Um, we're looking to engage with employees of the neighborhood who live elsewhere for whatever reason and other groups um, similar to those. To do that, we'll be designing a very diverse working group that will 
work closely with staff to revise the um, plans to kind of prioritize study issues as well as attend public meetings um, such as these. And one thing that we are doing a little bit new this, this time around, um, since we're always looking to improve the diversity, equity, inclusion aspect of our work is to um, utilize the 2022 Broadview Community Engagement Plan and its developed stakeholders list. So we'll be working really closely with the city manager's office and the equity and inclusion and belonging manager to engage with these populations in, in meaningful, continued ways from an established relationship of trust and understanding. One other cool tool that we'll be using to make sure that this is an equitable participation process is an equity impact assessment. I believe it is an attachment in the packet, and that will be a process that is used at the beginning and the end of the neighborhood plan update to really help us evaluate our impact for equity and inclusion. Um, the post-process analysis will allow us to kind of look back retroactively on our work relating to equity and engage with the public again for feedback on kind of how we did. So with those goals in mind, uh, we've heard great input from the Planning Commission on suggestions and direction for outreach and engagement efforts, which include um, suggestions like looping in the HOAs that are active in our neighborhoods and using our connection to that public, um, to those public kind of forums to identify and better understand the burdens that are being faced in those communities. Um, they've also given us direction to think about policy considerations for encouraging commercial center viability and economic longevity. Uh, small business support uh, is a big focus for the comprehensive plan economic development chapter. So the neighborhood plans can be used to kind of double down on those policies um, in certain parts of the city. I've added a couple of just key um, initially identified study issues and topics for each neighborhood. They're displayed on screen. I don't have too much time to go over all of them, but it should be noted that the study issues list is not static by any means, and it will likely be revised to a degree once we receive more input from our working group members, from our community as a whole, um, through upcoming engagement um, that includes some visioning events and a survey that will go live by the end of the month. Some accomplishments to date, just to let everyone know where we're at, we have created project web pages for both plans that can be accessed through the city webpage. Um, we've also created listservs, which are email kind of subscriber lists that folks can use to stay updated on the process. Um, the Attachment one of the packet is the neighborhood plan update framework document that really goes into, into um, detail on the process that we'll be using. It's been used previously for past plan updates, but we, we tailor it each time to the needs of whichever neighborhood we are, are looking at. As I mentioned, we're also recruiting for um, diverse working group members. They will hopefully be reflective of the community and we are looking to uplift those voices of community members traditionally less heard. Um, so the working group should ideally consist of business owners, faith-based organization members, youth, seniors, renters, and uh, communities of color. 
we have also completed a good amount of outreach thus far. Um, we have met with the neighborhood associations and provided information on the plan update, both the Juanita Neighborhood Association and the Evergreen Hill Neighborhood Association. Uh, we have met with city staff interdepartmentally to better understand any other projects that might intersect with our update or influence our update. And I've worked with some youth east side representatives who work at both Juanita High School and Kamiakin Middle School in Kingsgate. And those are continually, um, those are connections I'll be continuing to foster throughout the process to really better understand the needs of the students and their family members um, at those schools. We want to explore options for maybe a, a more targeted engagement effort or a community conversation with that group. So that's um, a priority for us. We have also met with King County Library Service leadership staff to discuss avenues for outreach um, at the Kingsgate Library specifically, and maybe exploring any issues or feedback that they have on improving the utilization of the Kingsgate Library. And we've already started getting the word out at city events like multiple Juanita Friday markets. We were at the 132nd Square Park opening to let Kingsgate neighbors know about the plan. Um, we attended the Welcome to Juanita picnic events, and we're really using these opportunities to hear from the public about their thoughts as well as recruit for that working group. So here's what that looks like in timeline form. We have launched our project web pages, as I mentioned. We are working hard to get the word out to everyone. We're listening to the priorities that we're hearing from these communities of events, and we're getting public awareness up to hopefully bolster survey responses as the survey will be launched um, by the end of the month, ideally in the next couple weeks. Um, moving into the November and kind of end of the year, we will put together a visioning event, one for each neighborhood where the community can come together and discuss their ideas for the future and update our vision statements for each neighborhood plan. And after the new year, we anticipate the drafting of the plans to occur at that time. Uh, once we've had a chance to really analyze the information that we've collected from the community, and we'll be continuing those conversations with uh, draft comment periods. Moving into the spring, we will finalize the draft with input from planning commission and do the required environmental review. Um, a public hearing will be held before planning commission for public comments with an eventual anticipated adoption towards the end of next year, bundled with those citywide comp plan amendments. All right, um, my favorite slide is indication of the several ways who of the several ways of folks who live, work, play, worship, or visit these areas of the city can participate and uh, make their voices heard. So the neighborhood planning webpage is a great starting point. It contains two pages, one for each neighborhood, as I mentioned. Through that page, you can sign up for email updates. You'll be able to understand uh, when the visioning event is scheduled and where it will be. Um, folks will be able to take our survey once it's live. They are able now to provide comments through a public comment form and my information is listed on screen and as as well on the website for for any feedback that folks see fit 
All right. With that, I'd like to turn it over to our council members. I really appreciate your time. Um, I was just looking for input on a couple of questions. We are wondering if council has any additional ideas for the planning, public outreach, or engagement process beyond what we've outlined. Um, specifically wondering if there's anything you wanted to learn from this round of engagement. Is there any specific information we can weave into the survey for you or uh, go to the working group for further discussion on? And then are there any issues not listed in the memo that, that you think warrant study? Leandra, you're amazing. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I, have Thank you, every, I have seen you everywhere this, this summer working the, these events. It, it, it's, it's just you have become a part of us so very, very quickly. So let's go on to do some responses. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, I, Leander, I echo what um, the mayor just said. Thank you so much. You are doing a fantastic job. I usually have like a list of things that I'm like, well, make sure we're reaching out to these people and those people. And I think you've pretty much covered them in the memo and tonight. So they, I just want to say thank you. Thank you to staff. Thank you to leadership. Thank you to everyone who's, um, who's hearing that input that um, that we give on behalf of the community. So thank you so much for that. Um, you mentioned reaching out to some of the school communities there and also wanting to reach out to folks who are working in the community. Um, there are unions of workers who work at the school in, ver in the schools in various capacities. So that's one potential um, resource that you could reach out to um, as far as members to join the working group um, or otherwise give input. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Councilmember Pascal, did I see your hand? Thank you, Madam Mayor. Uh, thank you for the presentation and the work you've done in really kind of crafting that outreach strategy. I wanted to just provide a, a, a comment or some thoughts. Um, I think the proposed land use changes by the property owners, those are going to be probably some of the, the bigger items that I think the community is going to be really interested in um, and want to learn more about. And, you know, obviously we're going to want to hear uh, what everyone um, is concerned about and how how we might be able to address those, uh, and that's 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 from a perspective of obviously we've been there, done that in other commercial uh, centers, and that's always generated a lot of conversation and um, around around those changes. Especially, I don't believe the the actions we've taken in some of the other commercial areas outside 85th and Totem Lake, you know, the 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 proposed heights are more than what I think we have allowed in some of those other areas. So that, that is something a little bit different than um, other commercial areas that, that we've rezoned um, um, have been. So I, I, I think that is going to be a pretty critical conversation. And uh, I just want to make sure as we go out to the public that we actually, um, these things can be very abstract, right? And that's what we've learned. Planning is abstract until you actually start understanding what's being proposed or what's being considered, uh, it's really hard to get good feedback or understanding. What we don't want is to surprise folks, right? That's what we want. That's what we've learned. So it'd be nice as we go out with these uh, surveys and this, this input that, uh, that, we, that we make this information um, readily available, that these are property owner requests, that we're going to be looking at these areas and probably larger areas than just these properties, I would imagine. Um, so any way that you can do that in the materials that are put forth, I think would be, be really helpful. And then that gets back to the timeline. 
it sounds like the draft plans would then come together in January and March, uh, January through March. So, you know, a lot of the public input then is over the holidays, November, December, it sounds like, and this could generate some some discussion that that could impact that. Um, so I just want us to be very sensitive and thoughtful around that. Um, the other the other items that I see as minor, you know, policy issues. This is this is a pretty major one that, um, especially when Michael's last proposed like a while ago. This was the, not the last time, but the time before that. There was like two times. Um, that we we got a lot of 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 uh, emails and stuff from, from the community. Uh, times have changed a little bit, but I don't know if, if the emails will lessen off, will fall off compared to last time. So that's something that I think we just, I just want to make sure that we're, we're daylighting this as much as we can. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Leandra, I was also gonna sing your praises and they beat me to it, but this was a fantastic packet. Um, and I have seen you in action, and I can tell in your presentation the true passion you have for robust engagement and outreach, and I really applaud that. So thank you so much. Um, just a couple comments. You, you heard my feedback that I wasn't clear what identified policies considerations surrounding open spaces and parks, what that meant. So um, I'm highlighting that. Um, Kingsgate, from what I understand, consists of quite a few HOAs, so I will be very interested in the impact of HOAs around our desire for incorporating Missy Mill housing and increased density in those single-family neighborhoods. And to echo Councilmember Pascal, let's daylight that. Let's be really clear that people know that's the conversation we're having. Um, I'm sure that a connection between Juanita Bay Park and Juanita Beach Park is in the existing plan. Um, but I'd like to continue to explore that. I wasn't clear what um, the planning commission feedback means of providing additional transparency and uniformity for affordable housing requirements and zones of all densities. Can you just explain what um, they were trying to communicate there? Yeah, I can take a stab and then Allison uh, might be able to provide a little bit more information, but I, we were hearing that given my presentation and my mention of uh, the affordability, or excuse me, the affordable housing requirements for multifamily development with more than four units um, being different for um, being different than the affordable housing requirements in low density zones. I think that we were kind of just receiving uh, feedback from a couple of commissioners that it would be nice to kind of relay the the standards across the board, if I was understanding correctly, and better better communicate that to the public. Allie, do you have anything to add on those comments that we received back in August? I, I think you covered it. I think the planning commission's interest in, was in a, an easier to understand way of communicating where we require affordable housing now, where we don't require affordable housing now, and what the threshold is for that requirement to kick in um, in different places. And so we're looking at the possibility of creating a couple easy to digest um, either tables or maybe even maps to help these communities as we go out and talk to them understand what the requirements are near them. Great. That's super helpful. So what the requirements are currently and what the requirements could be in the future. Okay. 
Thank you. Great. Yeah, and if I could just take a couple seconds to clarify the policy considerations surrounding open space and parks. Um, that was just really referring to the possibility of adding policies that promote acquisition of green space that maybe further protect natural ecosystems and or that things like pedestrian and bicycle pathways be recognized as part of an open space system. Those types of um, policies and that verbiage is direction that already exists within other neighborhood plans. So we will be asking these communities if they have similar interests or visions for, for those areas of the neighborhood. Apologies if that wasn't um, clearly identified in the, in the packet. No, but that was super helpful. Thank you. Thank you. Deputy Mayor Arnold. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Landry, again, thank you for all the, the information coming into this. Usually we've got a long list of things and you have covered, uh, covered uh, things very, very well. A couple of things I just want to emphasize. The Planning Commission talked about wanting to um, thread the needle and looking at the opportunity for development in the commercial areas of these neighborhoods, but um, um, wanting to make sure that we don't lose existing buildings, uh, businesses, and services. And that's uh, particularly um, of interest in what's happening in the consolidation of the grocery store market and want to make sure we're looking at those as something specifically to preserve. In addition, given some of the demographic information you presented in the slides tonight, um, we've got um, the Kingsgate neighborhood as, as an example of one that is one of our more diverse neighborhoods with um, uh, providing uh, uh, with housing for folks that have income lower than Kirkland's median and just want to make sure we're taking a special look at um, what policies might have uh, displacement risks so we can be looking at that through the, the, the process because, you know, in our zeal to build more housing, um, we want to make sure that our existing naturally affordable places are preserved. Thank you. Thank you. So, did you get what you need? Yes, thank you so much and more. I really appreciate the feedback. Um, as far as the next steps will be taking your input and using it to guide our studies, to guide the further outreach that we do, and just the overall future service to the community. So thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you, Adam and Allison, for joining us. Okay, this takes us to item B, Council Policies and Procedures Update regarding items from the audience. City Manager. Okay, thank you, Madam Mayor. So I'm actually going to need... Jim Lopez or someone's help to pull up the one slide I have on this topic. Um, and it's simply adding section five. Um, so Andrew, thank you so much. Uh, because I know that there's a couple amendments I want people to have the, so it says items from the audience procedure change. Um, so a uh, brief background on this. Uh, we are proposing to the council a policy and procedure change um, that would add a new um, element um, item five under the items from the audience description and basically what it says is that electronic uh, presentations from items from the audience uh, would not be accepted um, in the moment. Uh, there's a couple reasons for that, uh, primarily things like cybersecurity and also the opportunity to make sure that uh, because that's also streamed live immediately to everybody and also recorded that um, the content of those things wouldn't sort of explode onto the community. And also noting that everyone has the opportunity to email those 
uh, presentations and any content to the council directly, and also we would still retain the ability to hand out <coughs> hard copies of the materials in a council meeting. So this restriction would only apply to items from the audience. This policy change is not intended to change if there's a public hearing where people have time to be prepared, they can get that information to us early and we could screen it for security and other issues and then post it. And also this would not apply to special presentations, which would be a quest from the council to actually have someone come and prepare it. And again, we get those presentations ahead of time. So, so the language that is proposed in the policy and procedure is this item five. You can see this is all new language. And then the attachment, the resolution you have simply adopts this language into the policy and procedure as a new section five. Um, and so that's my overview, Madam Mayor. I'm happy to answer any questions from Council, and I know we do have a couple potential amendments on this. Thank you. Uh, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, thank you, uh, City Manager, uh, for this. I think this is a really important discussion for us to have. Um, I shared earlier with staff that, you know, um, I think there's a little bit more work to do to really think through uh, the implications of this policy on community members with disabilities. There are, you know, devices that may be um, electronic visual aids that may fall under this that we may accidentally disallow that would really be necessary for folks uh, with disabilities to be able to, to use such a device in order to communicate uh, with the council. There's also some language in here we may want to tweak. We talk about speakers may email such electronic materials. There may be people who want to present during items from the audience that do not verbally speak. So I think there's some language and as well as some accessibility expertise that we don't yet have on this proposed policy. I'm certainly not an expert on, on this. Um, I don't think any of us really are. You know, those who are the experts are folks living with disabilities. And so I'm not comfortable moving forward with this tonight without um, our DEIB team reaching out to the disability community to really ensure that we... Um, the implications of this policy really match its intent and that we don't accidentally uh, be non-inclusive with this policy. So I'm proposing that we, even though discuss this tonight, wait to take action until our DEIB staff can consult with experts in the disability community. Okay, I've already got four head nods in support of <clears throat> that. Um, further discussion? Well, uh, Councilmember Nixon. I'll, I'll just say I agree with uh, my colleague's uh, comment. Um, some of the word wording is a bit broad, and, and I agree it could exclude some things. Um, one of the ways I got comfortable with that is the fact that the council can always suspend the rules and allow things to be done. Um, although it, it can be confusing to people who would not even know to ask uh, that the rules could be suspended. And and that might be something that we could add to this as well, <clears throat> is to say that if someone does want to present something and they present it in advance, that the council could allow it. Uh, but I'm not sure how best to work that in here. But I, but I always have this feeling, as Councilmember Falcone was saying, there are going to be situations that a simple reading of the policy would say, no, you can't do that, but that the council would really want to have happen. So we want to make sure that that's permitted. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One, of the, one of the items we discussed with Councilmember Falcone was the idea of allowing the presiding officer to make a 
determination that in this particular case that would be allowed if something like that happened, I think, but having it all reviewed ahead of time was, was a really good suggestion as well. Councilmember Pascal. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Yeah, I certainly support um, making sure we get this right. Um, as So as we do that, um, it'd be great to think about, I had an amendment for some language just to think about some of those changes as you bring this back. Um, you know, my amendment was going to be not use the word PowerPoint because that's a brand and use <laughs> digital media. And that it seems so minor compared to us <laughs> being discussed right now, but just, you know, I think there's a little bit more cleanup. I guess the question though, for back to you, city manager, is we have this situation right now where some folks have asked to, to use digital media. So what do we do between now and then? Mm. Um, and I was, I, initially I was kind of thinking, hey, why not adopt something and then come back in a meeting or two and, and modify it appropriately, mm. just so that we have something in place. So we're not in this nebulous, situation where we've had some issues? So the, um, I think both those scenarios could work. Uh, the, the issue that we ran into is that um, without a policy about it, if someone wants to present, we really have no basis to not let them present. And so some of the content that we got showed could have been difficult to present, and we didn't really have any way to say you can't do that. We ended up, our deputy city manager spent a lot of time convincing a person that it would not be helpful to show all that, that, that kind of information. So um, without any policy change, you have the possibility the next meeting or two, something like that could happen. Uh, the chances are probably low, but it could. Uh, the opportunity, if you if you adopted it, you could come back and modify it again. And you always, as Councilman Rickson had, says, the opportunity to suspend the rules if you had a particular example of the, the October, November meeting. So I think we could do it either way. And there's a small risk either way. But right now we have no legal basis to tell somebody no without, unless it's definitely not allowed speech, right? So so that's the reason we're trying to do this here. We also do have the issues of the cybersecurity and we have the issues of the interruption of the council that it slows things down. So um, so I think, I, I think either way we could say come back later and fix it or you could take some action now and then come back and amend it. I think either one of those would work. So. Councilmember Nixon. Uh, thank you. Um, yeah, I, and I could support that too because, how do I put this kindly? Mm -hmm. We're kind of in a continuous risk that somebody will ask to present something who's here on a frequent basis <laughs> that we don't really want to have up on the screen, right? And yeah, we have our rule that you can't have signs but we don't have a rule yet that says you can't submit a PowerPoint. And so we might consider this, um, and I, I could go along with what uh, Councilmember Pascal is saying too. Go ahead and adopt this and then. Subject to a future amendment. And, and then we'll just come back in a couple of meetings and adopt it after it's been reviewed by the uh, disability yeah. community, et cetera. Um, I also want to get a. Qual a, a, a comment from the city attorney, not tonight, but an opinion. Because um, after I made the suggestion we could always just suspend the rules, they immediately struck me that if you suspend the rules for one but not for another, do you get accused of a First mm -hmm. Amendment violation? So I want to understand the ramifications of that, is that if we have a blanket rule and it's always absolutely no, then we're pretty clear 
on the First Amendment issues. But if we start granting exceptions to certain people, then we could be accused of discriminating on the basis of content. Yeah. And that would be a problem. Thank you. Oh, we, we can certainly look at that. So I guess it's sort of the, the pleasure of the council at this point. We could um, we could act on this knowing and with my clear direction that I need to come back with it reviewed at any proposed amendments, or we could postpone it and we could do that. I'm, I'm, so we could treat it as an interim thing? We could, yeah. So, <coughs> Councilmember Pascal, you want to m move your language? Well, I'll, I'll move uh, Resolution 5604. Okay. Um, moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Nixon to approve Resolution 5604. Discussion? All those in favor? Oh, sorry. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. I'll make, I'll suggest an amendment and, and uh, Councilmember Falcon can make another one. Um, I would, would like to, um, make an amendment to the resolution, Exhibit A, e-page 288, just to remove the word PowerPoint and replace it with digital media, and then also also make that same change in the whereas statement on e-page 277, line 13, along with some Scribner errors in that whereas statement that staff has identified. Second. Okay, moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Falcone, to accept the language Submitted by Councilmember Pascal in moving resolution 5604. Further discussion? All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries. Question is on the original motion. Second, oops, nope. Okay. Figured it out, eh? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Madam Mayor. I do have a proposed amendment prepared. Thanks to uh, city staff for helping prepare this earlier with a few minor tweaks, just for the record. And I'm also wondering, Madam Mayor, if I should include in my motion officially that we will come back. Okay. So I move that we amend resolution R5604 to one, come back within the next few meetings. That seem reasonable? The as, next soon as, possible. as soon as possible. As soon as possible. Yes. Uh, with potentially revised language of this resolution to adopt to consider adoption uh, after the DEIB staff and other relevant staff have reached out to the, the disability community, including individuals with disabilities and disability uh, organizations, and that we further make the language in tonight's uh, uh, resolution that we're considering adopting to strike the word speakers in the last sentence as it currently stands and change it to presenters. And that we would add a sentence at the end that reads, an exception to this rule may be allowed at the discretion of the presiding officer where a person with a disability requests an electronic visual aid accommodation in advance of the meeting. Second. Did we get that? Because I'm not going to repeat it. It's on the tape. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. And I think the only change was the change to the word speakers, which I think is a good suggestion. It was, and I added in advance of the meeting at the oh, end. Oh, in advance. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Is that an amendment to the original motion, right? Yes. So the question is on the new amendment moved by Councilmember Falcone, seconded by Councilmember Nixon, to adopt the language that she just described. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? 
The motion on the amendment carries. So the question is on the motion, uh, the amended motion, uh, moved by Councilmember Pascal, seconded by Councilmember Nixon, to adopt resolution 5604 as amended. All those in favor, please signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Motion carries unanimously. Whew. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so that takes us to um, council reports, I think. Yes, it does. Uh, I'll start with Deputy Mayor Arnold. Uh, thank you, Madam Mayor. On Thursday, September 28th, I had the opportunity to speak at a clean building symposium that several Eastside cities and Puget Sound Energy had uh, organized. This is on the Clean Building Act and compliance. There are 162 buildings in Kirkland that will need to comply with the act and its different uh, tiers. And we talked a little bit about the resources that city planning staff has available and compared to what our uh, our other cities are doing. There were some good ideas exchanged. I'd also note that that night, Council Member Pascal, Council Member Nixon, the mayor and I uh, served dinner at uh, the United We Stand um, tent city across from City Hall and talked to a number of residents there. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. Council Member Pascal. Thank you. Just a, a couple, couple updates to share. Um, we had the Active Transportation Safety Council meeting last week, and the safety in the state continues to be trending in the wrong way for active transportation users. Um, the number of fatalities of bi uh, bicyclists doubled uh, in 2022, um, and what was most surprising was a number, a majority of those fatalities were uh, bicyclists uh, age uh, 60 and, o and over. Um, so. And, and the theory, some of the, the reasoning behind that is that there is a greater usage of e-bikes, um, especially um, for the older generation. Um, so just things to think about as we continue to try to work and address those issues. Uh, on, I did want to just give a brief update. We did have our school coordinating committee meeting, uh, 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 Council Member Falcone and I, and uh, the city manager, and uh, we'll be sending out meeting notes, detailed meeting notes on that, but we had a good conversation just on a range of all the issues that are before us, uh, Houghton Village, uh, the comprehensive plan changes for future school property usage, um, the transportation benefit district, the school zone safety cameras, all that. Uh, we also talked about uh, um, changing the name of the private driveway to at Juanita High School to Ravens Way. We, we received an official request from the ASB, a, let, a signed letter by the, uh, the officers of the student body uh, requesting that and approval from the, from the administration at the, at the local school. Um, and so we, we presented that to the, uh, the Lake Washington School um, administra administration and they are going to look at how to make that happen um, and what the process is. Uh, so we'll hopefully hear back sometime soon on that. So just want to update on that. There was one other, maybe you can update if I missed anything. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Councilmember Falcone. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, Councilmember Pasquale, I think you did a great job summarizing uh, 
summarizing our meeting with the school district and um, notes are forthcoming. So you'll have the notes of that meeting as well in your inbox uh, sometime soon. And other than that, I have nothing else to report tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Councilmember Curtis. Okay. Uh, we, we, some of us toured the Together Center, which is an amazing facility. Um, GMPC worked through yet another thorny issue around the UGA boundary. We got it done. Uh, legislative work group, um, thank you all for your input on the 2024 wow, legislative priorities. We'll be bringing a draft to you for the next council meeting with a goal of finalizing it in November at our November 21st meeting and time for legislative coffees. And the uh, legislative work group will be hosting an informational TOD station area tour and discussion later this month uh, with Rep. Reed and Senator Leas. Excellent. Thank you. Councilmember Nixon. Thank you, Madam Mayor. Well, everything I was going to mention has already been mentioned, the, the, the blessing of going last, um, or next to last. But um, I did want to add on the Together Center, um, I was very pleased that it was just a day or two after we visited that the Seattle Times had a very significant article about that. And um, uh, so congrats to the Together Center on, on that. But um, uh, the result of that was that, at least I, I don't know about everybody, got some inquiries from people in the community about it. And, um, uh, you know, I've had the opportunity in a couple of instances to mention, like in response to those that, well, that's kind of what we have in mind for Houghton Village, in case you were wondering. <laughs> Hopefully that was okay. Um, although we're thinking about two stories of, uh, like maybe retail and nonprofit and then housing as opposed to just what uh, Together Center did. So um, anyway, uh, I think we're, we're gonna have an update on the progress on Houghton Village at some point. We can absolutely bring you on, yes. So I'd just like to, like to get a quick update yeah, on that at can some point. bring that to the next. Even if it was just a written memo in the consent agenda or something. Thank you very much. Great. As long as it doesn't come back as a master plan, right? Yes. <laughs> okay. I think you guys have covered almost everything. That Together Center tour was phenomenal. <clears throat> yeah. We got lots of paper. We got lots of a sense of, of what it costs. The units were absolutely spectacular. Uh, it is well worth uh, a tour. Um, wanted to give you an update. Oh, the Attain Luncheon. Went to the Attain Luncheon with, with Toby. Um, and uh, an update on Cascade Water Alliance. Uh, Ray Huffman has been away from his post as the chief executive officer since his wife died. And uh, I had a great conversation with him day before yesterday. He is coming back. He'll be coming back in November, uh, not full time until January, but he's, he's ready to go back to work. And that's really, really good news <clears throat> for all of us. And God bless Chuck Clark for simply stepping in when he was needed. He's a good friend and he's a, he's a good friend to Cascade Water Alliance. With that, I'll turn it over to you, city manager. Okay, uh, thank you. Uh, just a couple quick updates. So uh, you probably all know this, but we are having a community open house on the park ballot measure um, that's going to be at the NKCC this Thursday, and it's the city staff is going to make an informational presentation on that. I'll be there, Lynn Zwakstra as well. So that's open to all members of the community. Uh, we also 
in our meeting with the Lake Washington School District uh, asked about the potential to speak to the PTSA um, board, or I'm not sure what they call the group of PTSA uh, leads. Uh, they've actually made that possible, so uh, Lynn will be addressing the sort of Council of PTSA Presidents this Thursday, also at 11 o'clock, um, and it's also an informational presentation. So just wanted Council to know that those are continuing, and um, you know, give you any feedback that we hear from those. What time is the Thursday night? The Thursday night one is at 7.30. So it's later, okay. And the, um, the presentation... Uh, during the daytime is at 11.15, and it's at the school district headquarters. Great. Okay. Um. Then I also just want to give good news. Uh, you may have seen a city attorney wandering the halls. <laughs> Our city attorney, Kevin Raymond, is back. Uh, he's fragile but excited and passionate to be back, so he's... I uh, wasn't able to be here tonight. He's still healing, but he is now officially returned. Jim has done a fabulous job in the last six weeks of overseeing the city attorney's office in partnership with that team. But Kevin is now back officially as the city attorney, be working a lot from home, will be in occasionally. He still does tire easily, and you can't hug him because he's still fractured everywhere. But uh, he's, he's happy to be back, and he's looking forward to working with all of you again. So uh, really good news. That's truly good that news. Yeah. <laughs> and then any uh, calendar updates from the council. Uh, Councilmember Pascal. I had an informational request. Uh, we've been receiving a lot of questions about all the tree removals mm -hmm. along 124th Street, and I know I think Councilmember Nixon's replied to some of them on social media, but uh, I think it would be good to just get a little bit more information about that. I'm I'm curious about what options were looked at to retain some of those and, and, you know, why they all had to be removed. And then there are questions about what is uh, Puget Sound Energy going to do? What's it going to look like after they're all done? Are they replanting? What's that replanting look like? What's that mitigation? Just more specifics to offer the public. I just haven't seen anything official from the city in response to that, but I might have missed that. Um, do you think and then, again, the same questions with 100th Avenue with the clearing of all the trees with the construction. Um, so it's just kind of that similar theme. Um, what are we, what's being required? What's it going to look like after? How many trees are going to be planted? Um, so if that information could just be pulled together, that would be helpful. Okay. Thank you. You know, I mean, is there a way when we post those big white signs that could include information about the fact that they're going to be clearing so many trees, but they're going to replace them with so many trees. Because it does seem, every single time, it seems like it surprises people that we oh. take trees out. Yeah, okay. we can follow up. We'll get, get more information on that. Okay. Oh, my gosh. We could, 9.45. We go to a second. Items from the audience. Uh, this is an additional time in our meeting when we normally can hear from the public on matters that are not quasi-judicial quasi or otherwise scheduled for public hearing on our agenda and assuming the rest of our meeting has been concluded before 10 p.m. Is there anyone from the public who would like to make comments now in this second items from the audience? Sir? Okay. Uh, seeing none, then I will adjourn this meeting. Thank you very much.